Passing Dimes is over the moon to partner with Betstamp. Betstamp is a mobile app in the sports betting space that shows you the odds from every sports book in one spot. Do you enjoy betting on the NHL, the NBA, the NFL, World Cup, or more? With Betstamp, you can compare the best available odds at one sportsbook versus the worst odds at another sportsbook all in one place. Go to the App Store today and download Betstamp for free and use code DIMES. That's D-I-M-E-S. For a limited time, Betstamp is offering you, a friend of the show, an opportunity to learn more about Betstamp and several sportsbooks where you can get an edge in online sports betting. Message the Passing Dimes Instagram or Facebook account for more information. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of Passing Dimes. We're changing things up this week and sharing some clips from our top episodes. This one is a little bit longer than our normal episodes, so we highly recommend using that two times speed button. If there's ever been an episode to send to your friends to get them hooked and make them friends of the show, this is it. We hope you enjoy some of our best clips. Feel free to comment on any of the guests that we've missed. Stay excellent, friends. Kicking us off is Marquise from episode 96. And coming back to, you know, what I, I would say, you know, amazing, honest, uh, emotionally intelligent conversation and discussions within our team, John and I, Hernan and JP, overnight, I, I remember that hour and a half, two hour meeting that night after that disastrous uh, match against Spain. I can recall it. You know, there was a lot of focus on me because it was, you know, it was me that pretty much got every serve and broke down. And although John probably wasn't playing his best, it was a little less focus on his mindset. But uh, I can recall, like, I had the best team in the world right there uh, in terms of the support. They, like, there was no finger pointing. And it was, it was all so positive. And it's just reminders of why we were there and, and how, how we got there. We're one of the best teams in the world. And it was just like a, you get pushed down, but it's just got back up. You're on your horse and you fell off, but you got back in the saddle and it was just a, an hour and a half of no 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 we got this and here's why and this is what we're going to do and it was just like forget about the past here's the here's the opportunity uh to turn this around and what exactly are we going to do to to mentally uh get back on track and and uh, dismiss exactly what we were been, we've been training this mindfulness bring awareness to the moment and think about what we can do right now in our minds to get back on track, uh, an on-ramp, so to speak. We just fell off completely. So here's the opportunity. And, and there was no dwelling. There was no finger pointing. There was no saying, eh, this, you know, what are you doing? You know, why'd you do this? And we didn't spin our wheels. We spent an hour of just gathering momentum and real, finding real tangible reasons why we could turn this around. And, um, you know, created a story about uh, what we were going to do starting, like, now in preparation for tomorrow's game. And, and it was a, a real, yeah, mindful approach, uh, developing awareness to what happened and what we're going to do. And I was amazed the next day, right out of the, right out of the gates, you know, we smoked. I mean, we didn't just play better. 
we smoked our opponents. It was 15-2 to Sweden. It was 15. Like nobody got 10 points on us that whole way, including that team, Spain, who beat us 15-1 to a few days earlier. You know, we beat them 15-4. We beat Cuba 15-4. We beat Germany 15-6 or 15-7. Like these are tough teams that, you know, normally are top eight in the world. And, we just, you know, even in the bronze, we beat uh, Portugal, you know, 12-5, 12-8 in a different scoring format back then. But uh, we just beat them badly. And, and we almost beat Karch I shouldn't say almost beat. We didn't have a match point. But we certainly were a lot more competitive than we had, had thought. Remember, nobody had played Karch Karai, the great, you know, gold medal champion uh, guy in the pink hat it was there was such an aura around him and, and the avp players and so it was pretty pretty tough to get our minds wrapped around the fact that hey you know what we can beat these guys it was there was nothing in our past to prove that any of the world tour teams could beat the top avp teams but um you know it was a it was a good match it was uh we lost 15 11 but certainly i would say you know had them thinking um, yeah, if we had it back, we probably would have felt a little more uh, competitive. But uh, either way, we we definitely turned turned it around, and uh, it was this mindfulness training that I think was our huge uh, differentiator for our team. No question about it. And we had a friend of the show, Garrett May. You've worked closely with him. He mentioned he could never really dial it in with uh, journaling and little things. But one thing he said that you were were always top tier at was just daily habits and trying to get everything down to like a daily goal. Was that something you were doing at 96 or was that something that grew over your career? No, that's, you know, really JP Palou Fry, who's now, you know, a world leader on the topic of emotional intelligence. He runs his own company uh, institute for health and human potential he works with uh, you know nfl and, and the u.s navy and top corporations uh, you know and, and this emotional intelligence piece has become huge but back in in the mid-90s this was not a, a, a common topic and he you know that this this program was about daily habits and and just like uh, we Daily, we practice our bumping, our setting, and our side out, and our serve, and you know the physical side of it. Uh, he was of the opinion that emotionally, you needed to practice emotional skills, and um, you know developing awareness, and uh, openly discussing things, uh, you know your emotions, and just developing a, a daily. The practice of this kind of um, self-reflection and and healthy discussion within your team, and yeah, it was about you know our lives change, not just our our play on the court, but this awareness training and this mindfulness training and you know meditation even uh, at, at some stages uh, really crept into our daily lives. It, it uh, you know beach volleyball became a, a uh, much bigger and much more important to me after realizing that, you know, this is helping me become a, a better human, a better man, a better husband, and, and eventually, but you know, a, a father. And, and as as kind of hairy fairy as that sounds, and trust me, John Child is you know uh, as the most skeptical about that kind of thing. And I remember the first year doing this, there was 
times when John and even myself, but I, I, I would say I was a little bit more open to it, but like, what are we doing? This stuff is, this is not volleyball. <laughs> but you know, after one year of doing this, uh, I was amazed when one of the interviews we had, John was like, you know, mental training is, was the biggest part of this. And I was like, oh, so he's, he's on board now. <laughs> and, um, yeah, daily habits. Uh, I, I, I developed a morning routine of personal mental training. And to this day, when I talk to young athletes, and yeah, you're right, I was coaching John, John May's son, Garrett. John May was one of our Olympic coaches, and Garrett was uh, looking for some personal coaching. And that was one of the pieces that I tried to add to his plate was, uh, you know, this morning routine or, or daily routine to check in on, on you know, life, life skills and, and um, qualities, characteristics. Are you building the right characteristics and, and emotional skills to help you be not only the best volleyball player and manage any, any moment, any tough moment on the court, but are you also committing to that off the court, and I felt the two were, you know, worked hand in hand. And um, the better man you were becoming, or the closer you were becoming to your, you know, how, what you envisioned for your life, the closer you got to, you know, being the kind of athlete you wanted, you dreamed of. And uh, you know, that's that's Garrett might have been talking about that because I might have forwarded him all my notes and daily <laughs> journals and and uh, yeah, visual. Uh, whatever you want to call it, hand, hand books or workbooks that we had over the years. I had, you know, countless. I have, I have a whole bin in the, in the basement of all the, all that kind of work, mental training work. I definitely developed a, a strong work ethic in that area. So one thing that I'm kind of leaning towards with my own coaching and own development that I think mental training is fascinating and definitely important, but I'm of the belief that there has to be an action associated with it where we're playing a physical sport and there has to be some action involved. And one thing that came up in researching and talking to friends but that said uh, we're going to get you on the show is one thing that came up was uh, your, your secret workouts or, or the way you kind of built confidence in your competitiveness. Is Were these things that you anchored to when you're, you know, talking about your belief and, and maybe after a tough loss, you're sitting down, why do I deserve to do these things? Were, were those some of the actions that you could anchor to that you could convince yourself that you were, you were worthy of feeling this way, that you deserve to perform at your highest level? Like, what were some of the actions that you associated with all this this work you were putting into your daily habits? Well, yeah, for me, like, you know, beach volleyball, of course, you're part of a team and sometimes part of a bigger team Canada or team Ontario, or, you know, maybe your club has a, a you know, team, you know, a, a beach program or something. So that, to me, it's still very much an individual sport. And uh, I, I grew up with, I would say, very low confidence um, and because of my late entry into the volleyball scene, you know, I, on a lot of the indoor teams, I rode the bench and I was nowhere near in my mind, you know, a, a, a national team level athlete. I didn't even make the provincial team like it was. So it was really a, tough for me individually to have a, a, a belief system that could, you know, allow me to compete against the best teams and or players in Canada, let alone the world. So it was, it, I realized early on as I got immersed into the sport and, and started rising the ranks and, and becoming one of the better players that 
I needed to do something that was, you know, not secret training or uh, it was more of a personal belief building training because I had trouble believing in myself. I, I, I like I said, very low confidence uh, as a natural thing, you know, doubts and, and fear and, you know, all the emotions that accompany poor performance and, and kind of spinning wheels. Um, I, I didn't feel deserving. No, no way. So. I realized once I developed these goals that, you know, I want to be the best in Canada or I want to, you know, represent Canada on the world tour. I want to make the Olympics. And all these goals were just not realistic unless I was doing something that could help me overcome these obstacles, my height, uh, my lack of experience, you know, just, you know, my, my overall confidence level. So the word uh, differentiators, I can't exactly, you know, it might have been, I don't know exactly where I got that word from, but I, I realized that I've got to do something that nobody else is doing. I've got to develop a program. And this is back before, like I said, coaches, programs and structured, you know, there was nobody really that I could ask and say, hey, what do I do? Uh, this is my goal. What do I do? It was all up to me. And I started designing just like some written up programs uh, that I could think, you know, this is going to give me an advantage. And little did I know that doing that, and, you know, as an example, I thought, I'm going to wake up. You know, I think I was one of the first players to actually start practicing beach volleyball. Back then, it was just like, hey, we're just four of us are going to go down and play all day. Somebody can't make it. There's only three of us. Ah, we can't really do anything. So we'll pack up and go home. I was one of the first persons to say, well, no, let's, you know, why don't we do some drills? Drills, that's an indoor thing. But, uh, and I actually, I, I think I've known for um, this one man early morning practice routine that I started doing. And I don't remember the year exactly. I was probably around 19 or 20 years old, and I, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to get up really early, I'm going to be the only one on the beach, and I'm just going to develop a bunch of one-man drills, which I did, and uh, I, I strapped the net and a bunch of balls to my back, and I biked down, I was lucky enough to live right by the beach, and I set up the net, and, you know, occasionally I get somebody come by, hey, you need an extra, I'm like, no, I'm okay, I got it, and I have a list of one-man drills that I started doing. And I remember the feeling I started getting after those workouts. And this is an example of some of the things that I did to, to build my own thing, my own belief system. And I remember the feeling walking out of those, biking home at, you know, 7.30 or 8 o'clock when, I, you know, other people were just kind of waking up and coming to the beach potentially. I might be the only guy in Canada doing this. Certainly, you know, in beach volleyball, it wasn't that big a thing. And, and in fact, I started thinking I might be the only guy in the world doing this. And, you know, just that understanding and, and that kind of self-talk made me, yeah, uh, I didn't realize it then, but it was really contributing to uh, my personal belief system. And, you know, eventually when I did find myself in those really tough challenging moments and matches uh, about, you know, playing Ed Drakic and John Child or Ed Drakic and John Kanjar and Andy Cole and John May and all these 
a Canadian beach legend, uh, you know, I found myself way more confident than I thought I'd be. And, and it just started snowballing. And so the more I saw some value in doing these uh, homemade programs, these self-made, you know, I thought through it. And, I, and it was less what I was doing. Who cares about the drill? It was the fact that I was doing it. So, you know, when I talk to young athletes, I'm saying, okay, well, yeah, you belong to this program, and this is what all the coaches, and this is what everybody in the country is doing for training, but what are you doing uh, that's, that can differentiate yourself? And even the teams that I coach indoor, we always talk about, you know, what are we doing differently than others? And, and that's our advantage. That's what's going to set us apart. That nobody else does this. Nobody else approaches it this way. And, you know, slight differences uh, we'll bring some attention to. And because we thought of it, and it's a confidence builder. At the end of the day, these are all confidence builders. And that's what I needed the most work in. I needed to overcome doubt, self-doubt. I needed to develop confidence. I needed to overcome, you know, the fear of, of performing at clutch times in front of everybody. And these, uh, this personal belief system, this uh, mindfulness, this, this daily commitment to my own, my own program to differentiate myself absolutely played a, a big role. Next up is our most downloaded episode ever, The Eric Lepke Show, episode 56. Nice. And just to get into your kind of playing style, anyone who's watched Trinity knows that you really like to go forward from the service line. Uh, has that kind of been influenced by Ben Joe, or when did you kind of know that you could really help your team and kind of stay aggressive with, with the way you play and the way you serve? Are you talking like me personally or as like a team? Uh, let's go you first. And then if you want to share the team philosophy, I think that'd be great too. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I think uh, Ben Joe's like, kind of had influence on me with that like going for it from the service line but he's also like we work on it a lot like how well this is more of a team thing where how like how efficient can you serve with like a high percentage so like can you hit your your 9 out of 10 serve like 80% of the time in and that's something we really struggle with um, and it's something really hard to do so um, I think there's a lot of tactics and different drills and mindset things we do to try to, to master that. But it's a challenge in some games we're going to really rack up the misses and other games are not. Um, so I think as a team, especially the first semester, that's something that we've been really working on. And I don't know if you watched our game against Calgary, but we, we float served the whole game. Like everyone float served. Um, just, just really put a, like a, put some pressure on our block defense and see how that can, um, like we want that to be our strongest part of our game. So there's Benjo's as a really cool way of making us try to push ourselves with different texts of our game and serving um, the last couple of years, I think has been kind of pretty prevalent in the U sports league. Yeah, definitely. And you just mentioned uh, your blocking. Obviously, Trinity's been pretty famous for being a very good bunch blocking team. If, if you wouldn't mind, if it's not too top secret, how often do you guys work on that in practice? And 
what are the keys for Benjo to be a good blocking team? Like, is it just a lot of key reading? Obviously, your tough serving gets the setter off the net, which might mean it's it's going to the pins a little bit more obvious. But um, how often are you guys hammering this out? Because it just seems like that's that's almost become a brand of Trinity that you know you're going to get a good blocking team no matter who the who the players on the court are. Yeah, we we work on it quite a bit. We work on like our uh, our timing, our reading. We do this drill called block defense drill where the whole purpose of the drill is just to put the team in a good position but then really just challenge ourselves to make positive movements at the net um, with touches and slowdowns and and just working with our eyes where our eyes are supposed to be how we're supposed to read the setter and the, the hitters and yeah I say Ben Joe is a great teacher um, with block defense and we have guys who really work on it and focus so yeah, it's pretty prevalent in our gym. Now, is that probably the biggest thing that Benjo's added to your game, or what have you probably learned the most since kind of entering the program as you progress? Oh, man, I feel like I've learned, like, every skill. I feel like I've just kind of thrown it out and started from scratch. That's like <laughs> thinking back to my first year. Um, yeah, I only wish I knew as much as I did now, but I'd say – from the biggest thing I learned through the years was a lot of my like footwork and how important footwork is. Um, and Benjo has like different steps and footworks that he believes are like most efficient for our athletes. And the tough part is about young guys on the team is you come in and you're probably pretty good on your club team or high school team, but then you're not the best player in the gym anymore. And then on top of that, Benjo wants you to do your skills that you're good at maybe a little differently than you've always done them. So, yeah, like my footwork, I think, was so bad coming into my first year. I used to do like a a two-step spin serve, and my left side, like I would just approach like straight down the line. There's there's a bunch of stuff Benjo fixed for me, so I have that guy a lot. Nice. And with your own development and even the team system, how much is outcome talked about? Like, do you guys have a goal that you, you say you want to win Can West and win U Sports every year? Or is Benjo a big process guy where you just come to practice every day and kind of try to win that day? Uh, I think it's a bit of both. I think we start from the end goal. And the end goal, obviously, is to, to win another championship. But I don't think we just, we don't just like make that goal and then just like go practice and train. We like we work backwards and we it's kind of like a a ladder essentially. Um, we gotta like okay, let's like win each weekend, like win the first semester, win the second semester, and then each playoff is like its own kind of stepping stone. But then it also breaks down to like every day of training and um, it works backwards in itself. I think to make it attainable, one of the the mantras we use that Benjo talks about a lot is the 20 mile march. So there's a story goes, there's two, uh, two explorers are, they're trying to get to like they're exploring the Arctic circle and it's a certain amount of miles and there's two crews. They're racing to get there first. And one crew decides to just on the good days, They'll march as far as they can, and when it's snowing and storming, then they'll bunker down and they'll only do a couple miles. But the other group, no matter the weather, the how they're feeling, um, 
any circumstances, they're going to put in 20 miles every day. And that group ended up winning and surviving, and everyone else in the other group actually uh, didn't make it. So the point of that is we just try to every day come in and put get our 20 miles in. If we can get our 20 miles in every day, then we believe that by the end we're going to be in a really good spot to hopefully win. So that's kind of our outlook, I think, on the season in general, if that helps. The Fred Winter Show, episode 115. Riley Barnes and Stephen Marr are getting contracts that just weren't available for Canadians coming out. So with, with the foundation you guys put, what was your first contract offer? Like, how did you find the process of going pro in your era based on where the national team was? Because like you said, it was very competitive, but were you getting top offers coming out, uh, out of university to get your first pro deal? Yeah, I think uh, I did really well. Like, I I know some of the off. I know the offer that one of the top players in Canada is getting his his first deal um, this year, and I made way more than him my first year, <laughs> and that was <laughs> seventeen years ago. So I think I had a good first year deal, but you know the the finances in volleyball like ebbs and flows a lot and changes a lot between what league you're in and you know the it was great for me when I first played because the dollar the euro was at 1.6 so I was making 60% more when I converted it into Canada into Canadian money so it's awesome but yeah this in terms of the my first year so I played in Poitiers France my first year with Paul Durden uh, on a really good team, really, really strong team. We underperformed because we had a terrible coach. His name is Martin Teffer. I'll name drop him. I don't care. He was <laughs> awful. Dutch guy. Smoked six packs a day. Didn't Did a horrible job of developing me. But uh, in terms of recruiting, I had two offers my first year, two good offers. And one of them was... Uh, Mallorca, Spain, play on the island there back when they had a really good team. And uh, and the other one was out in uh, Poitiers, France, really good team too. And it was a little bit more money in France. And Paul was on the team and he was a veteran. And it was a good move for me to go there and see, obviously, his work ethic and how good a player he was. It was just the right choice for me. A little bit, a bit, much better league too. So that's kind of why I went there. And uh, yeah. And when that you're going it. through, and then I got then I got hurt in in preseason training, sprained my ankle, and they didn't rehab me, and I was injured until Christmas. And it was like, oh, there's so many bad things about that year in France that if I look back on it now, it's just such a joke and it would never happen now but this is 2004 i think they didn't care about the athletes as much as they do now wow wow so as you progressed and started getting more contracts and going to different leagues what did you start to evaluate like did you want to play in top leagues did you want when you played at the same club for two years were you getting two-year deals or were you getting renewed like how does that work because i think in volleyball typically it's one year at a time right yeah most of the time, it's one year. So I, I signed a three-year contract play in Russia. Only ended up staying there for two years. And that's the only multiple-year contract I've ever signed. Everything else is one year, my entire career. 
Oh, so China and Brazil both chose to bring you back then? Yeah, they were one year, one year, and then uh, brought back for a second year. Nice. But yeah, there's some interesting uh, stuff that happened with those clubs. I was just curious, like when you're comparing different offers at different clubs, were you a guy who wanted to play in the top league? Did you want to play yeah, for championships? No. Like, what was the big thing that you were looking for with your agent to say, "This is where I want to be this year"? Yeah, so this has changed over the years, and I do. Me and my wife do this rating system too for clubs because we all always wanted to figure out where the best option was. <laughs> so we would you know pen and paper and we would have categories so we would want like league country money city food was a big thing lifestyle so we'd have you know six categories and then we would write down the the possible offers that i had and towards the end of my career i didn't have so many (laughs) offers or teams to pick from but in the middle there was popping off pretty good <laughs> had some choices and uh then we would just rate them out of five and and, and then kind of decide that way where we want to go but in the beginning like in the beginning a- any player who doesn't say it's money wherever you get the most money is just such a liar <laughs> it's money it's always money it's where you get the most money and then if the money is very close and you're deciding between a place that isn't as friendly to foreigners, say like Iran, it's very difficult for Western players to go play there. I heard it's really not, I've never been to Iran, but it's tough. It's a tougher league to go to say, or say you're deciding between Italy and Russia and the money's similar. Like it's, you're probably going to choose Italy <laughs> just for the lifestyle of food and weather. So, it's almost always money based. I can see if you have a family and you're bringing them over, maybe you take a bit less money if you know the, the club is going to take care of your family and do some do some things for you, you know, get you a bigger car or get you a bigger house or apartment, stuff like that, but the overriding factor is always money. <laughs> nice, nice and I'm trying to think of times when I took less money. And probably I did at the end of my career just because my wife and I just started to really enjoy the lifestyle because we knew it was kind of coming to an end. So we would do, we would never accept the apartment that the club gave us my last, my last six, my last six or seven years, we found our apartments and just either the club paid for them or we had to pay a little bit ourselves. When you're overseas, you spend so much time in your apartment and you're there for eight eight months. It sucks if you're living in a place you don't like coming home to. So we learned that. Yeah, we just, we wanted to be able to do uh, trips, you know, whenever you have time off, you want to be able to like go explore. And so kind of the target changed a little bit later in my career it wasn't always just wanting cash we wanted to have a good time when we were overseas and we did our last our last six or seven years were some of the best best seasons that we had by far the dallas sunia show episode 172 like the game is so serious uh i'm about to go on a tangent but check it out like 
every game you play with the national team is like playoffs. Uh, there is no regular season. You know, you train all summer. And then I remember some summers we would have like five games. And that's it. So those games are serious, even if they mean nothing at all in terms of ranking or whatever. So the pressure is always there. There's always people watching. So you have to find ways to enjoy yourself and keep yourself at like a, a steady amount of uh, physical arousal. You know what I mean? If you get too tight, you're going to play like garbage. If you get way too low, you'll also play garbage. But like, if I'm in a tight spot, got to do something to like get my mind off of what it, what, whatever's keeping me tight. You know what I mean? So I was lucky. So I very much appreciate boss being there. So I can like, you know, offload some of whatever was on me at that time. Now, did you feel the need to ever explain this to either teammates or coaches? Cause I think as an outsider, sometimes people think like this, this joyful attitude shows that you're not engaged or you're not in a battle where for you, you're explaining this and it makes a lot of sense that you want to, you want to have joy when you're playing. It is a competitive thing, but like when you're, cause when I remember whenever Canada played in Toronto, like you're the first guy in autograph alley, you're the one talking to the volunteers, like you are being like this outgoing guy and kind of building the sport. But did, did anyone at team Canada ever see an issue with it or because you can explain it so well that it was just understood that that's, that's how you want to behave and you're still a professional if you do these things? Well, there's a couple of things there worth mentioning and I hope I don't forget once I start talking. <laughs> so uh, when I coach now, I, explain, I, I draw a graph about the arousal bell curve. It's bell curve. And right in the middle is where you play great. Below that, if you're not stimulated enough, you're not going to play good. If you're overstimulated, then your performance goes down as well. And I like the reason I explain it to college kids and university kids is because they're always so amped up before the game. For a lot of them, the, the hitting warm-up matters more than the game. So by the time the game happens, their systems are depleted. So whatever they've depleted in the warm-up, they won't have in the fifth set. You know what I mean? So I try to explain that. But that's hard to explain to like a 19-year-old dude when there's girls in the gym. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Uh, but in terms of enjoying myself, I, I joined the team when I was 18 and we had a lot of players who had been there for like 10 years. And right away, what I noticed, like I come in the gym, like very serious, like look here, we work, we do this, you know, this is a job. And what I saw is all these guys that I had looked up to for so long were the goofiest dudes you'd ever meet. Uh, and they had as much fun as they could until it was time to do the work. And then they were frigging professionals. Like they did, just did the work. And I noticed they found every opportunity, opportunity they could to enjoy themselves when it didn't take away from the work. Uh, so I tried to do that myself. Awesome. Awesome. And then to jump into the club scene, we just had uh, James Madison from Toronto here. He remembers playing with a really good Scarborough Falcons team, but they met in a national final against you. And he said the first set uh, that he feels like they, it was a really tight one, like maybe a 26, 24. And then he claims that they got absolutely slapped in the second set. And the credit he gives is we got the wrong rotation with Dallas and he was hitting against this mighty might left side and just going over top of them every time. So he, he said the third was tighter, but it was because they matched up like I think a 6-4 left side and then Batty's I think 6-8 is the middle but do you remember getting that much attention in club volleyball where like the other coaches being like where what rotation are they starting this kid in because if we don't have somebody in front of him he's just going to tee off on balls like do you remember like club being 
your ticket to the next level because you were going to play on the national team at a, at a young age? Or do you just remember it being fun and better than everybody else? I remember, I remember that I, I jumped high, like probably as high as any, anybody that was at the time. And I remember it being a lot of fun. Um, I do remember that game because they won, as you, as you know, we lost the national finals. Uh, and I had a string of losing really tight games that really started to wear on me uh, up until like university when I finally won. Well, that's not strictly true. I didn't win a midget national championship. That was a lot of fun. But I think what, what Batty's talking about is, um, oh man, we're going to get real deep here. So uh, my father is Mehiao, so he would say Cree. And my mother is Anishinaabe, so she would be Ojibwe. So my father's people are from the middle of Saskatchewan. My mother, my mother's people are from north of Toronto. So I have a mix of those two things, making me like just as indigenous as is possible, basically. For generations in Canada, indigenous kids were sent to residential schools. And a lot of awful things happened at these residential schools. Uh, my, my father went to a residential school. Uh, my mother, luckily, not so luckily, avoided residential school, but she was caught in something called the 60 scoops. So she was fostering the foster and foster. Uh, anyways, all their parents went to residential school and the generation behind and the generation behind for a long time. What I'm getting at is at these schools, they taught the kids not, they taught them their culture was wrong and evil. All their ancestors went to hell. They can't use their own language. Basically, that they're not worth a lot. So I imagine that is terrible as a four, five, six-year-old kid. And then you go back home and you've lost all these communication skills. And you're like, okay, well, I'm going to raise a family and do the best I can. And then those kids have to go to residential school. And it's just doubled down on it. You know? So you get generations of this. And it bothers me to say, but a lot of young indigenous kids, male or female, often feel like they don't deserve to make that shot. Like, so for example, my team, again, it's a communal sport. It wasn't just me. We have great players on that, on that team. When I got to a national final, I would often think, no. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if this is, it's just in the back of your mind that maybe you don't deserve it. So in my mind, looking back now that I'm older, I think there was a lot of that in the back of my mind that they Scarborough, they're a great team. I think we, we should have won. And I, oh, this is so cocky to say, but I, I put the loss on us more than them doing more. And that's so cocky. But that, that's what I feel happened. Um, and if we fast forward, we can come back to like, the career. But I remember there was a moment when I was playing in Korea where we were beating a team that I didn't think we were supposed to beat. And there was a scramble play. And I made something happen that was athletic and won the point. And I could 
I knew we were about to win this game. And then we ended up winning the game. And then I watched the match on TV that night and I saw the moment and I saw my face and I, I saw in my own face that I wasn't allowing myself to enjoy this moment. I was high, I was fighting it. And I realized at that moment, Dallas, you got to quit being so cold. You got to knock that off. You deserve this as much as anybody. So from that point on, to what you were talking about earlier, I really started to enjoy my career more. Try to encourage people, try to encourage my own team, try to build the sport, as you were saying. But anyways, I had several national championships, big games where, for whatever reason, I came in with that mindset. But after, after that game in Korea, I got rid of, I got, I got rid of that. So sorry to take that into a different direction, but uh, that's, I mean, it is, it's pretty important that, uh, uh, you know, I, I let that be known. The Gavin Smith Show, episode 113. Now, just to focus on your pro career instead of jumping back and forth with the national team, I was wondering if you could settle the rumor, because again, a lot of volleyball outsiders watching your career, is Korea's training and volume just so intense? Like looking at some score sheets, I believe like you scored 58 points in a match once. Like, are you just being used as the big foreigner there expected to be the point scorer? Like, was your volume that gnarly? And what were they doing in practice to like, either were you getting beat down in practice or were they just trying to keep you healthy for games? Um, so yeah, at that time, uh, very true. The volume was insane. Like, uh, yeah, I think I had 58 in one game and I remember seeing a list somewhere, someone sent it to me and it was like top scores in, in whatever, like however many matches and like my specifically that team, I should say, and kind of why, uh, but I, I had like. I don't know. I was on the top like 10 times. It wasn't like one outlier match where you had 58. It was like, I had like 58, 57, 52, 52, 45, 48, 48. Like they used me uh, a ton. And that was, that was normal for Korea. So the foreign player takes a big load. Like when you, when you see like big scoring matches, a lot of them are in Korea and that has kind of changed to, to now. Um, cause I was there this past year and, and they don't do it as much. They've, they're becoming more, more spread, but it is still very foreigner reliant because they're only allowed one. But my team had, um, it was just kind of the way they were built. They, we had some old receivers who could receive really well, uh, a wicked libero. And we didn't have much for another left side attacker. So we always tried to keep two really good receivers and, and kind of clever guys. And that was just kind of their game plan. They're like, we're going to take care of like defense, reception, everything. And we're just going to set our, we're going to find a guy who can be a workhorse and we're going to set him a lot and just find a way to be successful like that. And that's kind of what they had done in the past and what they did with me as well. And so games was always a, a ton of volume, uh, hit a lot of balls. And then practice was also hard, but I learned to navigate it a little bit better as my progressive years went, but I remember being there my first year and like, it wasn't any like four five or six hour practices. Like people sometimes say, but they work hard. Like we did a lot of defense, a lot of passing, a lot of like conditioning work, even within the practice and a lot of like hitting and serving for me, especially it was good. I was so young at the time because I was able to kind of endure it, but they, they just, they worked me the way I had to be. And 
in order to do it in a game because you need to be at a certain level of conditioning in order to be able to do that in a match and not be completely gassed out and to do it more than once in in a week or or in a, in like two weeks for that matter. So we did a, a lot of on-court training. And one thing that I don't know if people know is that we did like a ton of weight training. Like I've never done as much weight training as I did with that team. And it was just to try to build durability. And it it worked really well. And and actually like I went in quite skinny. I think I put on almost like 10 to 12 pounds of muscle over my years playing there. Like just because they they knew like the coach was like, you're too skinny, go to the weight room. Like you just need to build build muscle and be strong and be able to handle what we're gonna put you through. Did playing in the in the Korean League really help build your confidence? Like I imagine it's gotta be a great feeling getting over 50 kills a match, but also playing for a championship as often as you did, like did that really build your confidence the to let you know that you could get it done on the international stage? Yeah, so um I used to hear a lot of buzz like, oh, he's he's playing in Korea, Korea's easy, he doesn't have to hit against big blockers and and whatever. And and honestly, that's true. Had I been in a different country in Italy or Russia earlier, probably my development would have been different. And, and I, you know, I might've ended up as a different style player, a different kind of player. Who's to say what would have been better or worse? I don't know. But one thing I can say is that it, it was great for my development because taking the volume I did fast tracked me. I mean, in the world of professional sports, I was behind on reps on everybody and I just needed to, to do it and, uh, and catch up. It was also really good for me at learning how to deal with pressure and kind of be relied on when, when I needed to be, because I remember a game I came out, I think I had like 45 points and we lost and the coach sat down in the room and he looked at his stat sheets and me and like the percentages. He's like, kind of talked to the other guys in Korean and turned to me and he's like, you, you need to be, I forget what my efficiency was. I think it was like 52 or something or lower 49. He's like, you need to be above like 55% and score more. We're going to lose every game. So wow. And just like left. I was like, Oh, <laughs> that's, that's something. So it, it forced me to, to learn how to be kind of, take that, take a role within the team and like, okay, if they, if they need you, you need to be able to handle the pressure of being needed and to do it. So it, it was skill development through repetition, but also just kind of character development as far as being like trying to build, being a trustworthy player or someone who can rise to an occasion and, and build that confidence that I didn't have um, in becoming, you know, winning some championships and learning how to win and how to deal with the pressures of winning. Um, so it, it really helped me with a lot of, a lot of that. Whereas maybe some of the skill development might've been better somewhere else. It, it built a lot of intangibles in me, which, which I kind of fell back to and, and was happy to have later on. Again, just looking at maybe the pessimist side of, of some fans in our sport. Do you think that it's great to hear you list all the benefits of playing in the Korean league, but at any moment, did you start to think that maybe this volume was going to start to cause some injuries or where, where did some of the injuries start to affect you during your career? Yeah. I mean, some of, so I would attribute maybe some of my left shin to there, but, and some, and some people have said that like, Oh, that's probably why he got injured. And I shouldn't say I will, I suppose I, I can say you could, 
but honestly, like the most, the most problem I had there was just managing my shoulder. Uh, and it was never anything major. It was just like overused, trying to keep it calm down. It was always kind of just like tight and sore from, from swinging so much, but I had no problems with my knees. I had no problems with my shins, um, when I was there. So it's tough to say that Korea caused it when I left there pretty healthy minus just like some shoulder stuff that we always needed to stay on top of. And that's also due to some, some anatomy stuff with, with my shoulder. Um, I really like, it was really in the Russian season that my shin came to be. So I went to Russia after my three years in Korea and that's when I started to feel that, that pain in my shin. Now, I mean, do you want to make the argument that Russia was the straw that broke the camel's back or something specific happened in Russia? Like I'm, I'm not going to be one to, to pick one or another. Sure. A crazy amount of volume over three years really can't be good for your body. So probably had something to do with it, but it also might not have, it might've just been some circumstance as to what, what was going on in Russia. You can also accumulate it to playing full pro seasons, coming back, having a week or two off and jumping straight into national team and, and working nonstop. So if you want to blame Korea, the same pessimist should blame national team and be like, give people more time off. And maybe he shouldn't be playing 12 months out of the year. I would never say that or do that. Like I always wanted to play national team. I, I never wanted to take a break, but throwing blame at, at, at past places, I mean, you can always pick and choose where it's guided at is the point I'm trying to make Yeah, and because the pain started in Russia. Uh, I would attribute it to that season alone. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for, for sharing all the details you did. Uh, I do have to follow up on one comment when we had uh JVD on the show, he mentioned he never had uh, access to a translator at any of his clubs, but he may have dropped a hint that you did. So I'm wondering with your playing experience of being in, you know, Turkey, Russia, Brazil, Korea, did you have access to an English translator? Was that part of your contracts? Yeah. So it was part of my contracts in Asia. So that's pretty standard business for them in, in Asian countries. Korea always provides you with a translator. Japan provides you with a translator. I've never had a translator in any other country I've played in, but you know, Asian countries are very accommodating as it is. And they usually have bigger budgets because they're sponsored by big teams. So they'll hire you kind of a, a manager translator. It's just basically a problem solver, I guess. Is what you <laughs> call them. So if you have issues, um, you talk to this guy directly. And I think that's also because in the teams I played for as well, there was never a ton of English. So the coach wants to be able to, to speak to the player as well. So yeah, Japan, Korea always had a translator slash problem solver uh, who could kind of contact the manager, or deal with the club, or knew what to do to to help you with situations, you know, with your banking or or whatever. I never used them as much as maybe some other people did. Like I always tried to find a way to function without them within, like you know, grocery shopping or some of the day to day life, and then use them very specifically within the team. And what were some things you were looking for with your contract? Because uh, I actually left one out. You won a championship in Brazil as well. Uh, you, you got to play in Turkey and play, I believe Glenn was at Arcus at that time and you got to play for a Turkish championship. Like, were you looking for these pressure moments where you were expected to be the best opposite or the best scorer and you wanted to play for a championship? Or when you were choosing which country or which club to go to next, what really went into your decision making? 
Um, so yeah, after Korea, I, after my third year, well, it was actually in my second year, I wanted to go. Um, and I was looking at a club in Brazil at that point. And then the coach flew from Korea to Canada to sit down with me and try to bring me back for one more year. He gave me a big soft story about how he was going to retire and, and, uh, he didn't want to train a new player. So I went back for one more year, but at that point I wanted to play in better leagues. Um, and it was nothing against Korea. I've always enjoyed playing there cause it's very fun, but at a certain point in time, my focus shifted and I was like, yeah, I need to be playing in Russia, Italy, maybe Brazil, Poland. Those were kind of the, the top at the time. And so straight out of Korea, I was looking for the best option for me to play on a good team. And I always wanted to play on top teams if, if possible. I mean, you know, it's not always possible, but if you're, if you've had a successful enough career and, and the opportunities are there, I was always like, send me to the, to the best team where we have a chance at a championship and I'm playing at a high level. Cause I, at that point I wanted to know what I was worth. I didn't want Korea play there for 10 years and, um, and never know if I could have played in Russia or Italy or top clubs and been successful. Even though funnily enough, when I told my coach in Korea, I was leaving, he like basically slid me a, a blank check. He's like, you tell me what you want and we'll bring you back. And I kind of just told him, I was like, don't, don't try to keep me like, let me go and, and try to see what I can do. And he was pretty respectful of that. Thank God. Because as with pro sports, money always talks and they have a way to bring you back. <laughs> but I, I sacrificed on that end to, to go to Russia and sucky enough, they, Russia didn't even end up paying me. And I lost like 80% of my contract there because the team went bankrupt and, and it was crap. So after that, I, I had the option to go play for Glenn. Like I had gotten in touch with him and he wanted to bring me over to Arcus and, and there's an option to do that. And I was like, you know what? Turkey at the time was, was really booming. A lot of good players were going there. Sokolov, Wantarena, Kubiak was going to like Hulk bank. So I was like, you know what? It's a really good level at a more secure place. And, and Glenn can, had kind of assured me that, that it was, um, safe. Like there wasn't going to be any money problems. So I started to recognize that. I also changed representation with my agent. And after that move, it was always just like, try to find teams in really good leagues and really good positions to, to play at a high level. I didn't, didn't care if necessarily I was the best player on the team. I just wanted to win. And of course I wanted to be successful and play well and, and try to be the best player on the team. But I just, I really wanted to play high level volleyball and, and see what I was capable of. The Josh Winstock show episode 94. Awesome. And then just to, to fast forward a little bit, you pick up Schachter and you guys are doing well and you guys win an event, which I think was the first gold medal since John and Mark won Berlin. I think when you guys won, was it that Argentina event in 2015? I think. Yeah, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, exactly. So that that's an awesome result. You guys are going to Pan Am, like you're you're doing all these things, and then you find yourself in this continental event again, right? So was it does it ever get easier? Did it did your experience kind of help bring Schachter through the process, or how did it feel the second time when you're going through all this? Yeah, I think I was able to kind of you know bring some uh, experience or or perspective to him. I mean, honestly, I feel like the guy is one of the best players in the world. I mean, I don't mean one of as in like the you know top uh, twenty or something like that. Top ten, he just can do everything. So you know, I, I my goal and my job was to find out what buttons to push or how to you know, <laughs> you know bring him along to to bring out that uh, maximal performance. And um, yeah, he was he was a rock. He was always there. 
because you know people in those environments they uh, they're kind of just saying you know uh, you know it's it's um people have said in the past with those big matches oh it's just another game and I think they're just trying to minimize the pressure but you know I found that's not true and you know it's not true and even though you know like it's the same motion with the uh, two by four you know you're up there because if you, you just know that if you fall off two by four you're not going to die but if it's up you know 20 feet even the same motion you know so that so there's no way around that I, you know I've, I've seen some of the books like pressure is just um, I'm not going to name names of who wrote it, but you know, pressure is just psychologically made, which it is. Okay, but that doesn't mean that you know you don't have to feel it. So I've just realized that um, instead of avoiding the feelings of pressure and trying to deflect the nervous butterflies, um, I know that I performed well in the past when I felt it. So I kind of just have a relationship with it and, and embrace it now because I know it's inevitable. I know it's going to be there, and I know I've been able to perform well. So instead of kind of trying to fight it, kind of just go with it. But the, the match against uh, Sam Grant was a little different because, you know, with 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 Redmond and Ben, you know, we hadn't really played too much, and we were pretty even going in, so we knew, you know, kind of anything could happen, and obviously anything could happen with Grant and Sam. But I think we had beaten them maybe the last five or six times in a row. So, and they were playing amazing. They actually are the reasons we even had that game because they saved us in Sochi. They were playing unbelievable. So we're going into a game where kind of have everything, you know, to lose nothing to gain, so to speak, because obviously the game of the Olympic spot, but just the way that um, we should be beating them because we beat them the last six times, but they are feeling confident and, uh, and they played like it. So it was, uh, they played like it all the way until the end of the match, which is, you know, what experience really can do, especially in beach volleyball. Yeah, I I mentioned to you I I got caught watching that game and I have this fight with my friends off air all the time about I think it's a little bit overblown about how how you should feel or how confident you are and I want to hear it from the horse's mouth here. You're down eleven eight. I wrote it down eleven eight in the third and you guys come back to win it. So in that timeout when you're down eleven eight, are you guys like are you feeling confident or are you admitting that like we got to make a play and there's some sort of like action here right where there's mental toughness I, I get is a fascinating thing but eventually there just has to be an action attached to it right so. So down 11-8, spot for the Olympics. Like, what are you and Sam talking about in that timeout? Yeah, no, you're totally right. Mental toughness, yeah, it's very important. But you're right. You have to actually execute the action. You know, I've been in so many situations where I've been down and come back and I've up and I've lost. And, you know, it sounds cliche, but you have to stay optimistic. And it's easy to do that when you're winning, but so tough to do that when you're losing. But I've seen it happen and I've been a part of it where, you know, it's possible. And you just have to find that kind of, little uh momentum you just have to find that little spark to get going now to be honest we played well we, we had a we had a good game plan after that moment but you could tell they didn't play the same after that 11-8 uh switch and it was because after a timeout you have that moment because i've been where they are they came into the game with nothing to lose they lost a bunch of times they're playing free they're playing aggressive and they're taking risk and it's all working out but as soon as they think about the fact that they actually now have something to lose, uh, you play tentative and you play a little passive, and and that's they're, they're being kind of changed. So I'm not saying, uh, of course, that we we played well, we deserve it, but they didn't play the same, and it was because uh, you know that moment uh, the the psyche changed, and they're they're all that aggressive and playing free and risk taking um, went away, and that's what kind of makes you champions because I've seen it. You know, I've been on both sides, the losing side and the winning side, when you're still able to take those risks and, and play free when uh, you are in that situation of you know, the utmost pressure. 
So that was kind of the, uh, we just kind of, we've been in that situation before, at least I have. So we were able to kind of um, see what was happening and, and we knew what was going to come next and, and then we executed. Now we got to get Shakhtar on the show at one point. And when we had Garrett May on the show, he talked about when they won worlds, like Garrett was convinced that Shakhtar was like the best player in the world at that tournament. He was just doing everything. And you <laughs> talked about like the skill level he has, but I think anyone who's ever been at a practice with you two or close enough to sit courtside, you guys have a running dialogue the whole game. And like you, you have this focused attention. I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit about like where your attention goes. And even if somebody scored against you, if they did the action you wanted, it almost felt like that was in your pocket for down the stretch. So and it almost felt like even when you guys would cheer, like that was calculated, right? So did you guys hit it off right away with like how tactical and like methodical you guys were going to be with how you both saw the game? Yeah, well, well put. <laughs> Who would think a cheering is uh, is thought about in the skill in itself? Yeah, we learned that real quick. Uh, we were playing against uh, Ricardo Emanuel, defending gold medalist. I don't think we cheered loud once. Every time we got a point, we were like, super quiet. Let's just hopefully get this. And, you know, we ended up doing this. So it's funny. And then, <laughs> you know, when you're playing against a team where you know you kind of have a little bit more um, swag and confidence, that's you can, uh, you know, do that differently. So, yeah, no, you're right. Little things. Then that, that is the difference. Uh, it's, it's hard to see that to the entry and die. So kudos to you for picking all that up. But, yeah, because you know you're going to have to give something up. And you can't really, you know, if someone scored against you, was it my uh, assignment that was missed was it my partner's assignment missed or did they just see something and good on them but yeah you're using that for later because a lot of teams will uh, set somebody up and give you something at the beginning because and really it comes down to you knowing what their favorite shot is you make a play for them to hit their, their favorite shot in the end and if they beat you by hitting a shot that they're not comfortable with then you know good on you because you're obviously not going to win all the time but if you kind of in a nutshell have that type of mindset uh you'll win most most of the time nice and how much did trust come into it or as him being like the young buck on the team could he ever call you off and be like no we're running this play like when you're in the heat of the moment like did a, did a leader come through on that team or because he's at such a high level, you're at such a high level, how was the communication when you're, you're running these plays and maybe you don't see the same thing uh, on the same play? Yeah. Initially, you know, he was uh, kind of a sponge. Like, like Garrett said, the guy can do anything physically and technically. Um, and it wasn't to a point where he understood the tactical game, but he picked up everything I was saying so fast. It was honestly like, sometimes I'll play with people. <laughs> Those would be like, you know what? Just give me one. It's okay. Like, hey, you're, you're talking too fast. You're saying too much. I can't, uh, I can't <laughs> follow it all, but he, he absorbed it all and he was on my level. Um, so yeah, he became, uh, you know, the teacher pretty quick in terms of him being able to, uh, to make a play, you know, and plus he'd give me that look, like sometimes he'd be like, I don't know, you call it. And sometimes he'd look back and be like, do this, serve here, we're running this. And then it would work out, you know, he's in that zone. So we, we got a feel for a while when he was able to take over. And I tried to just support that as much as I could. Awesome and awesome. And one thing I'll never forget when I first started working with the national team, you actually gave kind of like a guest speech to the next gen group. And one thing that stuck with me from that chat was uh, at your peak, you were sharing things that you wanted to work on in practice. And I think people might say, well, that, that makes sense. You want to work on your weaknesses. But to go back to the carding thing, you're sharing this with people who are going to obviously try to take your spot or you're sharing this with Grant and Sam at the time who are fighting with you for that Olympic spot. So looking back, like how did you come to terms with that where you said like, guys, I really want to work on, and it could be something as simple as serve me on my right because I'm not very good there. But how did you speak up and practice and say, I need to work on this. Can you guys push me in this area? 
Yeah, initially I, I wanted to avoid that at all costs, but then, you know, I saw it on tour where guys, I'd be training with them before and they would put themselves in a vulnerable situation where it was their weakness, they were being exposed and they would lose, but they didn't care because then they were, you know, I guess, confident moving forward in the actual game because they worked on that. And that took so much vulnerability but also confidence because they were willing to show people what they were weak at but you don't get over that hump and that was my issue at a lot of times where that always would come back so unless you're willing to like just you know go up to like you know, the brink of disaster you, you won't get over that so that was something that i remember seeing on tour and you know i remember seeing the vikings these guys like they get there they're being interviewed Another player on tour, I'm not going to name name, but they, and he's very, very successful. And they ask him, well, you know, what are your blocking tips and this and that? He's like, well, I'm not quite retired yet, so I don't want to, I don't want to get everything away. And then the Viking guys, you know, the Norwegians, Molson, they, they get interviewed and they are giving out everything. And it's, <laughs> which is why they're so good because they honestly are they're so young, but they play and their experience is already like they're old. But they, uh, they just tell everything because if you're going to take one thing away, then they'll just adapt, right? And that's really it's all it's about. You can know game plan and all that stuff, which is why I love the beach game because there's no coach out there. And it's just about who can adapt uh, and continual adjusting. So if you're not able to adjust on the fly, you're going to lose anyways. And they knew that they could do that on the fly and they could do adjust to any style. So um, I, that's when I was confident in myself that even though if they do want to make this um, about my weakness, then I'll prepare for that and then be able to have a game plan to to adjust back for that so yeah, you have to go through that process for it and i think it's awesome with all that you've shared and when we look back at your career i mean being a two-time olympian you, you've won medals you were at the the pork finals with the majors which for a canadian men's team to be doing that at the time was awesome but do you do you remember when you're in it like are there little victories that you're taking as like confirmation that you know you're on the path or how did you like to look at goal setting like are you a process guy that you're just going to work hard and plug away and things are going to happen or are you almost like, uh, I like the Michael Jordan example where he's making up stories and he's finding like these little battles about like, oh, my GM thinks this guy's good at defense. I'm going to tear him apart. Like little things that happen on almost like a daily basis. How did you find yourself going through that where it, it can be a grind on tour, but do you get these moments of success? Do you, do you let the external kind of thing give you motivation or do you always just like to stick to your process? Uh, no, I definitely had to uh, do the former. I, I mean, the process is very important, but you have to be able to adapt. So, yeah, I would do things like that because if I knew that I wasn't uh, performing well, yeah, I would uh, kind of, you know, either give myself little, you know, pinches on my legs, like wake myself up and Sam thought I was like sick or something like that. He'd be showering and get all these bruises on my thighs. He's like, what is wrong with you, man? You have problems. But, you know, you got to find certain ways to like elevate your game. But my, uh, you know, everybody needs their competitive advantage and everybody has a different style. So I knew that, okay, I wasn't going to be, you know, as physical as the other person, but I was able to study their game and use their kind of weaknesses to and expose them. So the way I was able to kind of succeed, so to speak, were those kind of intangible things that nobody could really see that I would make it look like it was kind of, oh, I got lucky there again, I got lucky there again. Because, you know, if you look at my style of play, it definitely wasn't pretty. Like, I'd be shanking balls, but, you know, I knew we knew we had plays for, like, if I pass it here by accident or, you know, if, uh, you know, if I was tired, then I would, you know, run across the net on changes, side chains, make it look like I was fine. Or, you know, when you're fixing your glasses or kind of just all those little intangible things because, you know, I forget what he talked about, but he's like, MJ was 
started to be the next level when he took control of the momentum of games. He's like, he was always amazing, you know, in terms of scoring, but it was, it was the intangible parts where he could feel the game and, and let the game come to him and, and not rush. And just little things like that, uh, you know, when to deviate from the game plan or, you know, how to improvise and trust your intuition um, in the moments where like all your logic and reasoning is telling you something else. You know, sometimes the coach will be like, this is the game plan. And if you deviate from it, cause it's not working, you lose coach is like, well, you know, you didn't listen to me. You didn't, you didn't uh, do the game plan. That's why you lost. And then the next time I'm out there, uh, it's not working out. I want to do the same thing, but I don't want to get in trouble by the coach. So I stick with it, which I shouldn't have. And, you know, and then you end up losing, but you can't get in trouble by your coach. So it's like knowing when to make those changes yourself um, is really when, you know, that, that happened for me. And what would be an example of a, of a feedback loop of that? Because I think it's fascinating to hear you do that. But for a younger athlete who wants to go execute this, is it just almost trial and error where you got to like when to clean your glasses, when to cheer, when to run on a side change? Like when did you get confirmation that that was something you wanted to do or or just that it felt right in your game? There were several, several times. I mean, if I go to you know, Porich, the biggest one of them all, you know, we were talking about going over – we were playing um, a big right side guy, Varen Horst, and um, for at least the biggest one of them all for our for our results. And and he was you know massive. He was killing us, and we couldn't stop him. We did get him on him before, and we we're like, oh, we'll break him, we'll break him. And uh, you know, I, I remember same kind of question. She would go over to uh, Numidor at the end, uh, and I was like, you know what? Let's wait until the end of the game just to give him a ball and, and see him. But if you wait too long, you might not even get there. And I ended up serving him like two just poopy floaties, nothing special at all. Shank, shank, you know, and then we ended up winning, I think, 15-13. But, you know, at that moment, you you wouldn't really know because, yeah, it's all experience. But the key is you have to take those risks and then learn from those risks because, you know, you can't really tell someone, oh, this is, you know, how you clean your glasses. Or you can tell them what to try, but you don't know if it's going to work or not. So as long as they attempt something and then they log it in their mind, like how did that work out last time? And then you adjust the other way. And then you kind of, you know, find that happy medium and calibrate in between there. So that's, that's why I love the beach game because really usually the people that are winners, those are the most experienced. These, these uh, you know, Norwegian guys are throwing that out the window, but before them, literally the only people usually that were one were the uh, ones who had experience because they've been through it all. So there's no real way to like find out what's going to work before. You just have to try, but don't, uh, don't, I guess you have to find out what's going to work. And if it doesn't work, log it and make sure that you understand why it didn't work instead of just kind of sloughing it off. This is awesome, man. So just last question on this area. Are you keeping a journal? Are you just like remembering because it's so emotional that you can like recall it quickly? Like, how are you keeping a database of all the stuff you've banked over the years? At the time, yeah, no, I didn't do a journal initially, and that's uh, a great question. And I started doing that after because you're so emotional after the game, whether you won or lost. Um, and Leonard was great at this. He's like, he didn't want to debrief after a match um, within at least a day or two because you won't really be objective. So, you know, you should write down what you're feeling and then you wait another day or two and then write down again what your thoughts are. And because it's hard for you to know that because you're so, it's subjective. You don't see the difference, but when you actually read the two journal entries, uh, they're so polar opposites because one is just objective and neutral and one is just coming from emotion. And it's, it's so difficult to play with emotion. I'm sure you hear this obviously in all sports. Um, so yeah, having a journal in terms of what worked well, what didn't. And you know, there's times where you know you leave the game 
you know, you're in Switzerland, it's so expensive, your friends, your family, partners, like, you know, you're feeling this, that's why I love this game. You can feel larger than life or smaller than a little, you know, crumb. <laughs> and, uh, and you might not want to admit it to other people yet. Um, but if you write down what you're truly feeling, it'll, it'll work out for you in the end. But it's just, uh, it's tough to, to be exposed and vulnerable like that. So the first step is, you know, being true to yourself because you can make all the excuses you want, but you know, deep down what, what really happened. And then hopefully you obviously have a partner or a kind of small, small group, whether it's coach or somebody that you can be honest with. And that's when the true growth starts. The Sarah Pavin show episode 128. Is there any moment that there was like a light bulb effect that like Scott probably thought was like a simple beach thing where you're kind of like, Oh, that does make sense. Cause I feel like the way you described OVA beach was just like, there wasn't a lot of coaching going on. You guys were playing an indoor style on the beach. Like was there anything that he pointed out? Like other than like simple, simple stuff that I think kids do about like, where are they going to serve and who are they going to serve? Was there ever a beach tactic that you're kind of like, Oh, that, that makes a lot of sense where Scott's like, yeah, I would teach my juniors this. <laughs> Probably everything. Um, I, I'm not sure. I will say, okay, in 2015, I finally figured out holding at the bottom of my block and like making sure to really straighten my elbows, like thinking, you know, hold, but get your arms straight as quick as possible. When I started thinking about that, I was able to get out of the vision and penetrate the net with my hands at a really quick speed. And I think that was a turning point for my blocking was just putting together this, these two little pieces that were just a little off for so long. And I'm not sure he teaches juniors that because a lot of juniors, they don't like to block, but (laughs) Yeah, that I will say for my blocking game was just a light bulb moment. Yeah, for us, I think it'd be a wasting opportunity to not ask the uh, FAB best blocker, three-time award winner, some questions on blocking. So with beach players, I feel like there's just this cat and mouse game going on the whole match. So without giving away any trade secrets, what are some little things that a beach blocker can do to really influence it? Like you talked about staying out of their vision, timing your press. Like to me, blocking is the hardest skill because you can do everything right and not get the results you want, right? So what are some things that you would pass on to a blocker who wants to block and be at the net? But what are some little tricks about like even the AVP example that you were going to keep your line side hand high and press with your your inside hand to take away like the cut shot and the highlight and roll like was there other little tactical things that you would like to pass on or don't uh, think Scott will get too mad if you give up little secrets on the show here I will start off with the thing that I tell all young blockers is that being a blocker on the beach especially in the women's game can be incredibly frustrating just because like a lot of the time you just feel like you're spinning in circles and not really doing anything. Women don't hit necessarily as much as, as the men do. And so the defender is, is required to dig so much more. So as a blocker, as a female blocker, it, you need to be confident and secure to know that if your defender is making digs, it means that you have taken away what you said you were going to take away. If you are measuring your success as a blocker on how many blocks you get, you're going to be miserable because so much of blocking on the beach 
is taking away one or two things and cutting down options for your defender. So I will start with that for sure. For blocking, different things that you can do is you can, I think you always need to figure out if the hitter is looking at the blocker or the defender. And so that can will contribute to your defensive decisions, whether the blocker should make some fake moves with their body and mess them up visually, or if the defender should juke around back there and, and mess them up. So it's always important to figure that out. You can switch up your timing. Some hitters hit really quick and you have to get over the net faster, um, whereas others are always waiting. So mess up your timing. You can do visual moves like stepping into their vision and taking the opposite away. You can try to shot block, which is reaching really high instead of over the net. You could late pull. There are so many strategies that you can do to try to elicit a response from your from the attacker. Um, but it's just about being creative and, and not doing the same thing all the time. Now, is there anyone who comes to mind that messes up your rhythm as a blocker? Like, I think when they did the world championships, like the camera work there was really good if you can get access to the TV feed. But somebody like Duda obviously has great vision. So does it take a little bit extra to mess with her? Because I feel like she might be one of the players who sees both when you say, are they looking for the blocker defender? Like she might be surveying both right with her vision and what she can do with shot choices. So. Like, is this something you're you're going through the game and trying to access? Like, obviously, you have a plan, but with no access to a coach on the FIU World Tour, how are you and Melissa checking into saying, I think she's seen this or she's seen that, and then make your plan from there? Because I feel like on the beach, the plan at the start of the game isn't always the plan when it's 18-17 in the second set, right? Right. So Melissa and I are checking in pretty much every point. Um, we think it's really, really important to do that just, you know, to make sure that we, we're both seeing the same thing, to make sure that we're on the same page, see if we want to make any adjustments. So we are talking to each other all the time. Also, the way that we approach video, you know, we're not expecting to, to get 15 points off of what we absorb through video. We are picking up on tendencies that we can exploit at a really important point of the game, whether it's right before a side switch or a technical or something like that. So if we can steal a couple points from the video that we're watching, that's a win. Um, so I wouldn't say we definitely go in with a plan, but we are not glued to that plan by any means. I completely agree with you in saying that Duda is one of the few players in the world who, who can see both. So in that circumstance, we need to, one of us is, we will keep things the same and then one of us will make an adjustment and see if that makes a difference. And then if that doesn't work, okay, let's switch it and try this. There are so many options of things you can do to elicit a response, but if you find something that elicits the response that you want from the hitter, then you need to bank that in your memory because, and hold on to that later because you want to be able to use it when you have to. The Hillary Howe Show, episode 164. Now, you mentioned, obviously, when we talked about the jump from club to university, that you're in a gym with athletes who have been on the B team or played national team where uh, 
unintentionally, sorry, I kind of glanced over it. In your years of club, you actually made like the junior national team. And I think that was the year the team was selected from National Team Challenge Cup. Do you just remember yeah. that experience? Like how excited were you? Because I think the way it delivered, there was a little bit of drama, right? Because I think I was there with Team Ontario that year. I think we, we did the medal ceremony and then the team was announced, right? So you just remember like hearing your name announced that you were going to be on this squad. And then athletes like Kira Van Rijk, who you'd been across the net from and been in some tough battles. Now you guys are teammates. Like, do you remember just the feeling of getting that squad and just being like meeting your teammates on the first day being like I just battled with all of you and now I got to be teammates like what was that like yeah that was a really cool year I was so I was U17 playing in the U18 uh like NTCCs that year and so I was underage and so I I remember in at Team Alberta being like and I think this is how I've always you know perceived playing at this level is okay, well, I'm going to work really hard to make this U18 team. And then once I got to that U18 Team Alberta team, now I was competing to start. And then I, I got the start. And then now, you know, we went to NTCCs and I was just trying to perform and play well with my team. And it's funny because it was a battle to make that U18 Team Alberta team. It was, I mean, my year and the year up were very strong. And so I actually was... I didn't even have, we had to go, I mean, the national team got selected and I actually didn't even pack my passport or anything to go to the States because I didn't even cross my mind that I would, I would make it to be honest with you, which is crazy. I, I just didn't feel like I, I was confident in myself. I just felt like, Oh, I'm under it. And there's a lot of great players here. I just, it didn't really cross my mind. So I remember when it got announced, I called my parents and I was like, I think I need my passport. Like we're going to Iowa. I'm training for a couple of days and then going with this amazing group of players to play for the junior national team. It was really surreal. I remember. And my dad had to like, whatever you like send my passport in 24 hours or something so that I was able to go like, <laughs> over the, like I just didn't, I didn't even, that's how little I expected it. So it was actually kind of a shock to me, but I remember that was such a cool, cool, cool experience. I, I here and I have been good friends since that, we also went on a, a missions trip together in my grade 11 year to Haiti. So I knew her actually a little outside of volleyball. Um, and so it was really cool to play with these amazing players. And our, our coach um, taught us, I remember like learning new things, like we were practicing like pancakes a little more or like recycling the ball and what that looked like. Like it kind of felt like a big jump to the next level. And so that was really cool to experience that and play with some really amazing players. Yeah. I just thought it was a, a cool experience because you battle. And then like there was a squad that was selected. I think they were going, Oh, I forget where, but they were going to make a training camp and it was just like a high performance ex experience for them. But then you guys got to go create like a team Canada and go to the U S. So it was just kind of a, a cool cycle. And uh, I mean, you never really recognize it when you're in it, but, uh, when you look back, like that was this pretty special group that the, there's athletes that have gone through that cycle with you that are now on the senior national team, right? So is that just kind of a cool thing where you're in the team room to look around and you see Lane and you see Kira and I think uh, Courtney was on that squad too. Like obviously there was yeah. no way to know that when you're 17 years old, but is that just a cool moment to look back and be like, wow, this really was like a pipeline and a lot of us have made it through to the senior team. It's, it's super cool. We were, you know, you know, last month in Italy, uh, Kira and Lane and I were, were there and we were just talking, talking about how we all go way back. Like we played together six years ago and, you know, we, we were kind of making jokes. Like it all started at JNT and here we are now. And it's pretty cool, like to be playing with those players. And yeah, like we have memories from, 
from those training camps and traveling, uh, traveling, you know, to the States. And, uh, yeah, it was that, that group was really special and it's cool to, to represent Canada at a whole new level now together. It's, it's really special. And to, to skip ahead a little bit, you also had the the opportunity to represent Canada at FISU. What was the selection process that cycle? Because obviously FISU, you have to be a, a full-time post-secondary student, but was there an official tryout? Was that a, a selection? Like, how did that squad come together? Because again, just looking at the names, like uh, Alina Dorman, uh, I think Caroline Livingston was on that team that you just played with oh, at yeah. VNL. Like uh, the, the same names came to, uh, Courtney Baker was on the team. Like the same names seemed to pop up over and over. I'm just wondering, how did that squad come together for your cycle of FISU? Yeah, it was, um, it was actually mixed in with the senior A and senior B, uh, team tryout. So that, that year, all, if you want to try out for FISU, B team, A team, you all showed up to the same tryout and you checked off a list. Like, do I want to play FISU, B team, A team? And like, if let's say you just want to try out for the A team, you didn't have to check the B or, uh, Fishu team. So there was kind of a, a choice there and the, the scouts knew kind of who was trying out for what, because Fishu was, uh, I think it was maybe a three or four week commitment. And then obviously B team, A team was the whole summer. So some girls, yeah, didn't want to play the whole summer. And so that group was all at tryouts. And uh, I think it was, yeah, me, Corey White, Courtney Baker and Caroline Livingston all played on the B team that summer and Fishu. So we got to do both. Like you, you, we took a break from training with the B team and trained with Fishu when they came to Richmond. So it was a pretty cool tryout. Like it was a mix of, you know, a lot of great players and it was, you know, it's, it's nerve wracking being in a tryout with, you know, older skilled players and all of like lots of us university players were there. So it was, uh, yeah, it was cool to, to be selected for that. And Fishu was really, one of my favorite experiences playing volleyball. It was, it was super fun and such a great group. And then, sorry, just one more to get us off topic. And then I, I swear we'll get back to your interview, but uh, I'm curious, uh, Garrett and I, we, we have another show called Sharp Cuts, which is a little bit more of a discussion show. But when we had Jen Cross and uh, Caroline Livingston on the show, we made the joke that some of you hadn't met each other yet and you were going to a senior tournament, you're going to VNL and you didn't meet each other. But actually, yeah. do, it, when doing some research for you, it seems like the young core did know each other because even uh, Cassie, I believe, was on your FISU team. So it really was just mixing the young and old. But there was these connections, like you said, that like Lane and you go way back like six years, right? So uh, I'm curious yeah. what your interpretation was of VNL because obviously there was athletes that you wouldn't have met. Maybe you see around the oval, but you wouldn't have got to work with where, well, what was your impression? Cause in speaking to Jen Cross, there was some athletes that she literally met at training camp that you were then going to go play VNL. Yeah. I forgot to actually mention Cassie. She's a good friend that we played VNL and Fishu together. Um, but yeah, we and I, actually, interestingly, so that B team summer, um, so two summers ago, I played, I played Fishu uh, for those two weeks in Italy. And then pretty quick after I went to Peru to play the Pan Am games with like kind of an AB squad. And so got to meet new players and play there. And then I uh, got to go to Colorado Springs, which was like uh, North Sica. And there was players like Jen Cross and Emily Maglio and some of the, the 18 girls were at that tournament. Um, and then in October, got to go to a Pan Am cup or whatever it was and that was full a team so i actually got to play with 
it was cool. Like it was kind of these stepping stones of like the level just kind of kept getting higher. And I got to the opportunity to make all these rosters uh, that allowed me to actually play with. I think there was maybe one girl that I hadn't played with um, before going into this BNL, which was, I think, unique. And probably I had played with the most girls thanks to that summer. Nice, nice. And I think uh, Coach Shannon is doing a great job. But to me, the the mood around the women's team really changed when Tom Black was the head coach. And he was only with us yeah. for the short amount of time. But I think he really laid the foundation and Shannon's doing a great job. And you guys like did really well at BNL. But going back to your early experience, can you just mention like what Tom did for the program? Because I think he he gave like a certain mindset and a certain credibility where I think like stuff that he installed, maybe I'm, I'm over speaking here, but I feel like that's still trusted today. And it's even trickled down through like university and clubs. So what, what was the mood around the national team when like the coaching change did happen? And all of a sudden you're at one center. And like you said, FISU B and A are all under one roof and you're interacting. And it's just like kind of a big team mindset. Like what did that feel like being in it as a young athlete? You know, it was really cool because it, he came in with a system. Like I think the, you know, the senior A team hearing, hearing stories, the coaching staff has, has changed up a lot and, you know, they're swing blocking and then they're shuffling and they're bunch. And then they're at the, the pins. Like they, they've kind of been through it all different seams. like, they've really had to change uh, based on the coach's style. And uh, he came in and, and streamlined, you know, seams like we take our deep left and short, right. And swing blocking and helping in the middle and, there was a lot of cool things that he, he just sort of set like right away. I remember there was a meeting with everybody. So being 18, there was a few meetings at the beginning of the summer kind of laying out, like, this is our system. This is how it works. We're all going to follow it. We're all going to buy in. And yeah, it was made clear to us on the beat team. Like you guys can be called up. You guys are, you know, you're one step away from, from being on this, you know, team that's pursuing the Olympics. So it was a cool all in it together and we were all you know training the same system and and working hard i remember the first time tom introduced himself he he said okay you know 90 days till the olympic qualifier it starts right now and i remember thinking like wow that's a you know that's inspirational he he set i mean obviously our national team you know the dream is to go to the olympics and i think just after a few quads of not not qualifying it's important to still, you know, still have faith in that and, and come to it every, every day we train uh, to make that, make the Olympics. And so he really instilled that, I think. And I, I mean, I don't know too much about what, what the environment was like before him, but you could tell the girls bought in and uh, he uh, kind of reset the focus of the team and brought people together for the, you know, the ultimate goal of, of making the Olympics. So he was, I didn't get to experience him too much that summer, but Often he, yeah, he really was very encouraging and empowering coach. Even for me, I remember I, when I got to play with the senior A team in that one tournament, um, coming in as, you know, the 14th player, you know, the last player on the roster, uh, he, he talked to me on the phone and I hadn't talked to him too much. And he said to me, like, how are you feeling going into training in this, this tournament? You know, it's a big step. And I said, you know, I just want to like make sure that I'm, you know, playing well enough in practice not to be like stick out like a sore thumb or, you know, compete well and and, like make sure that the other girls, yeah, are are feel equipped and that I can help them get ready. And he just said, like, 
you know, you need to, you need to enter that gym. Like you want to start, like you got to, you got into that gym. Like you want to be the best player in that gym. Don't go in thinking you're 14th man and want to blend in. And that was a really cool, like for not knowing him too much and him to just bluntly say that to me on the phone, like, Oh, your mindset is, oh, that's not right. Like you, you have to go in and be the best player in the gym and that's the only way they're going to get it better. And so that was pretty cool. And one of my few experiences with him, he also connected me with my agent and put in a really, really great word for me to get a sweet agent. So he, yeah, I really respect him and look up to him. Like he was a really awesome guy from what I gathered. Wow. Thank you so much for mentioning that. Cause you and I were just chatting quickly before the show and we talked about like your love of just the team sport and playing free. But I think, you know, growth mindset, it gets brought up a lot, but it, it gets tested, especially in an environment where you mentioned like you're the young player on that team and you, you kind of mentioned you want to blend in. But when you're in training and, and you're building towards the system that like not a lot of athletes have come from that program, right? So you're, you're failing a lot, but you're around high level athletes. You're a high level athlete. You want to be competitive. Like when that growth mindset gets tested, how do you feel or how do you get back to this level that you are playing free? Cause it's, uh, I always go back to when we had Autumn Bailey on the show. I have so much respect for her. And I just love her. But, uh, she mentioned that like Tom's changing stuff in her game and in her mind, she's thinking like, I know I'm good, but this is like, this is rough. I'm having a tough day here. So how did you go through that process where you're constantly learning and being tested, but you're, you know, it's going to be a process, but man, you just want to be good right away sometimes. Right. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's tough. Like, you know, learning something new or picking up a new shot that looks ugly to start with, but you kind of know, um, it's going to prepare you down the road. I mean, I, one thing I, I tell myself like, is I, I just, I do, I've always loved to compete and I, and I love to, yeah, like be, I when it's 24, 24, you know, like it's like the pressure's on. And, and so I think, I think just knowing like in those slow moments in practice where you're working out a skill that that's going to help you, you know, in those moments where now you have another shot or, uh, yeah, you're actually getting better in those moments where you feel like you're playing horrible because you're, you're pushing yourself and you're learning something new. And so I remember that summer, like developing my range a lot more, like having really specific drills, like we're hitting, we're just hitting as sharp as we can this drill and, and having to find a way to hit sharp. And that my, you know, my, that wasn't really my shot at the time, but sucking at it for a little bit. And then when it starts to come, your, your game elevates. So yeah, trusting the process I think is, is huge. And, uh, and, and doing it, um, so you can be competitive in those, those key moments. The Tory Grail show episode 85. Looking at the, the rest of your career, I'm very curious how Penn state manages kind of goal setting and expectations where let's just say it, Russ Rose isn't a big, uh, sunshine and unicorns type guy. He's not going to be <laughs> fluffy with the way he communicates. Right. So when you get into your red shirt freshman year and you're contributing and, and you're getting the, the starting nod, how does Penn state manage that? Do you guys talk about national championship? Is it a process driven school? Like what is the the message to, to this excellence? Because it, it seems like you guys have accomplished so much. I think the year before you got there, they won an NCAA championship and obviously you made a, an NCAA final four. So obviously the, the team was doing well. So what is the message of practice or seasonal planning or in these meetings? Give us the, the behind the scenes about how they talk about excellence there. Um, so yeah, they were back-to-back national championships before I got there. So they won in 2013 or 2014. And just every year, the same like the mindset's the same. Won a national championship. The first words that coach says at the beginning of every first meeting is, 
we're here to win a national championship. We're not there for anything else. We're not planning for what's after school or we don't, he doesn't even like (laughs) when we're in practice, if he looks at us and he thinks that we're not focused, he'll be like, Oh, are you thinking about your next meal or what you're getting after practice? And I'm just like, no, trying to, trying to think about a national championship. You know, he, he like wants you on the same, he wants everybody on the same track. He just wants everybody to be on the same page. And the page is winning a national championship. That is the be all and end all goal. We go into every lift with this lift is going to help us win a national championship. We're supposed to go into every practice with the mindset of we need to play as hard as we would if we were in the national championship game. And it's as simple as that coach instills that in you from the moment he meets you. It's just at the bottom of it. You know, it's just at the end of the day, I think everybody's goal should be to win whatever they want to win. I mean, we have a picnic at the beginning of every season with our boosters and our boosters are people who donate and come to every game and, you know, support the program. And we go up on a stage and we introduce ourselves every year and we say who we are and, you know, what we want to do in school and what our goals are for the year. And everybody goes up there with, want to win a national championship. But, you know, after a while, it gets a little tiring for 20 some odd of us saying we want to win a national championship. So we throw in other goals in there. Like we want to go undefeated at home. We want to win the big 10 championship. And there's never individual goals. I've never heard somebody go up on that stage and say, I want to be the big 10 player of the year, or I want to be the big 10 defensive specialist. You know, there's just, there's nothing like that. There's no individual goal mindsets. Everything is, I want to win a national championship as a team. And it's not for like individual benefit either. I never heard Megan Courtney go out there and be like, Oh, I want to win a national championship because I want to be the team USA libero. Like, no, she's not like that. She is like the team player. She wants to be the most hardcore person she can be on the court because it will help her team win a national championship. And she accomplished that. And that was something that I really respected about her. Um, and like all the players that have gone through Penn state, I mean, everybody, I think that's why coach recruits the way he does and the players that he does. Cause he wants people that are like-minded. Now, did you find it was, it was freeing and it helped you stay connected to the goal by saying this, because as I'm listening to this, it sounds awesome and inspiring, but at the same time coming up through the Canadian system, it doesn't feel very Canadian to say we're going to win a national championship every day. Right. So were you comfortable with the fact that everything you do, whether it was eating dinner or lifting weights or watching video, like we're doing this so we can win a national championship. Did you connect to that right away? Or did you struggle with just, it's just not something we do back home, I guess. I mean, I think I might have struggled with it. Looking back, I want to say that I didn't because I think I was always fully like engaged in that winning mindset. But I know I can be passive at times and say, oh, it's okay, we didn't win. And, you know, I, I have to act like that now because I'm done and there's nothing I can change about my career. But, I yeah, I definitely think it was a little bit of an adjustment. But I just had girls that were older than me that were so, like, they were so in it. Like, they were bought in, and they exuded that Penn State winning mentality onto me that I was like, I'm all in. I want to win at all times. And I, like, we'd be doing drills, and, like, especially freshman year when I knew I wasn't on A-side, and I was trying to compete to get on that A-side, even though I know I wasn't going to get there. There was the starting seven. 
And I just, I wanted B-side to kick the crap out of A-side because I was like, I want to win. And it was really hard when we wouldn't win. But there were some drills where B-side was supposed to win. Like, he was supposed to make it hard on A-side because they need to learn what it's like to lose. Because you don't win every game. It just doesn't happen. Like, losses happen. That's part of sports. Every Somebody has to lose a game. And I just, yeah, I think that mentality going into it is you want to win everything, but you have to look at it in hindsight and be like, okay, I lost. It happens. I have to get over it so I can be prepared to win the next game. Now, looking at the Big Ten, obviously, like like you mentioned, every game is competitive, and you went to the tournament every year of your career. So as you're going through these tough matches, how did you prepare for them? Is there any advice you'd give to some of our younger listeners that, like you said, you're going into Nebraska or maybe at home your gym is packed or maybe you're in the Final Four and they're, they've, they're in an NBA stadium and it's packed? Like, How do you stay committed to your goals and whatever the game plan is when there's thousands of people yelling at you and all of a sudden you're on TV and there's there's more distractions added to it? So I really enjoy routine. No matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, um, going into a game, I need the same routine leading up to it. I just, yeah, like if I'm away, if I'm home, I if I'm going into practice, I need a routine. And I don't like being rushed. I don't, and it doesn't have to be like an hour-long routine. It doesn't have to be, you know, anything extensive. It can just be like a few short breaths even before you're going into it. But yeah, I definitely had a set routine going into every game, every practice. And it was just setting for practices. I would set a goal of what I want to achieve in that practice. And then if I wasn't achieving that goal halfway through practice, I would like try to refocus and we'd go over the water cooler and I would like think to myself and be like, okay, maybe I can achieve this goal right now, but what is the best way that I can try to be my best? And I just, you know, some days you can't always bring your A game and you're not going to have the best practice of the best game of your life. And I think that's okay, but you have to be at least giving your all to try to be your best. And I think if you go into every game with that mindset and you block out the crowd and you block out everything that's going on besides the game, I think you'll be good because at the end of the day, you don't want to be, you know, remorseful or regretful or mad at yourself because you didn't give it your all when you could have when you're on the court like you can't take things back and I just think that that's like the way that most players need to go into games and I know that's really hard I mean I struggled with it there's so many games that I have regrets on things I didn't do but I just think that if you prepare yourself like if you're preparing to win then you might win and you'll be happy. So don't prepare to do anything else because then you'll just be upset. I don't know. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if my advice is very good, but I think just mental toughness is the thing that people need to focus more on because physical toughness can come with age and so can mental toughness. But like if you're going into, if you're preparing for games, prepare the same way you would for your final game. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all these details. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask just about your university career was you had the challenge to change position later on in your career. So 
I'm, I'm guessing with all this access to video and feedback that maybe made the transition easier or how did you find this new position? Because I'm thinking back to your club days, I think you were a middle all the way up. So how did you make the change to an outside hitter in your last year? Briefly at Defensa, I tried outside and right side just because we had like four really incredible middles. But turned out I was just not that great back then at outside. I don't, I don't know what it was. So anyways, yes, I was in middle all the way up until my senior year. But luckily, the OVA offers a beach program. And so I had always trained with passing and hitting on the outside and on the right side. And so after my um, redshirt junior year, I didn't play that much, actually. I came off the bench for the tournament because one of the middles got injured, but there was two freshman middles that I'm not going to lie. were extremely athletic and were starting over me. And I, for lack of better words, threw myself a pity party and didn't play that much. Um, my redshirt junior year. And so I went to coach and was like, I'm not happy. I'm not playing. And that's not something I'm accustomed to. And it's not, I'm not comfortable with just sitting on the bench anymore. I, know, I was like, I know I can help this team in other ways. I was like, I see that we're lacking outsides for next year. Can I train to be an outside? And this was like right after the season happened. And he was like, you want to help this team in the way you can? And yeah, I'm going to let you train as an outside or a right side. I was like, cool. So that entire spring I trained as an outside and it was extremely hard. I was not prepared to wait as long as I had to for the ball. I kept being early to everything because from middle, you're supposed to be, you know, up in the air when the setter has the ball in their hands. And as an outside, that is definitely not the case. And so I was not very good at that. I think that was like the biggest adjustment for me. It was just like waiting. So I'm not a very patient person. <laughs> but I just, I knew that I wanted to help my team have the best chance of success. And so I was like, all right, it's time for me to change positions. And one of my coaches had been trying to make me change positions since he got there, which was my sophomore year or redshirt freshman year. And I was just like, stubborn. No, I'm a middle. I've been a middle. I don't want to change. And even my boyfriend, he like helped work with the team and he was like, change to be a right side. Like get out of the middle. And I was just like, no, I'm a middle. But anyways, when the time came and the opportunity arose, I was like, all right, I'll change to be an outside. And I think with all my OVA beach experience that the, the difficult, like the change wasn't that difficult. Um, but that's also because we had a team full of amazing DSs. Like we had Keaton Holcomb, Jenna Hampton, uh, Emily Shora, Christy Carlos, and then of course, Kendall White was just an amazing libero and could pass the entire court if she was asked of. And so I did not have to pass that much. And it made it a lot easier for me to change because being a middle, you don't get to pass much. And so originally I switched and I was at right side, but our former right side, Johnny Parker was playing outside and she was like, I'm kind of struggling. I would like to go to right side. And I was like, honestly, I trained as an outside all spring. I'd love to go to an outside. So we switched positions and that's when we started doing a lot better in the season and we started getting in a better flow and rhythm. And I think people shouldn't be limited to one position. I have a lot of 
younger girls message me and be like, oh, well, my coach says I should be a libero because I'm not that tall. Or, oh, I'm a middle because I am really tall. And I'm just like, try every position because there is no harm in being a utility player and having skills in every position, in my opinion, makes you more like recruitable and more valuable because you have multiple skills. Say you're on the bench and your outside goes down. Okay. Then your third, your other outside goes in. What if they're not playing very well? Well, then you're the next option to go in. And what if you do really well and you perform and that's your new position? It's just, there's no harm in cross-training in volleyball. There's endless possibilities if you know how to set, hit, play defense, serve, everything. And so I just think that when I change positions, I did it for the sake of my team. But players when they're young should do it for the sake of themselves. Now you've been so great about sharing details and really let us into like what goes into your mindset and everything that went into your career at the university level. I was wondering if we could just circle back to that pity party uh, comment. At, at what point did you realize that, okay, I'm unhappy, but how can I still help the team? Like, did it start off as like, Oh, what was me? I'm not starting. And you had like a little bit of a bitter phase or was your mind always, okay, they beat me out, but I'm still going to go to practice and work my tail off. I'm still going to make the team better. Like where was the balance that you're upset that you're not starting and that was taken away from you, but you can still do something else to be better. So that was definitely instilled in me freshman year when I didn't play was okay. What can I do to make the team better? And if it was me not playing that freshman year that made the team better, I was like, okay, then so be it. I want this team to have the best chance at winning. So when I got my starting position taken, I definitely was a little bit pouty, I would say, for a couple weeks. And then one of my assistant coaches was like, look, you look upset. You look like you don't want to be here. Like, what is wrong? Like, I know you're not playing, but you're still a part of this team. And you're like, you know, you're here every day at practice making these girls better. Like, you're putting in what you're supposed to. And I was like, okay, but I'm not playing. And he was like, well, that's on you. Like you need to get better. And so I definitely was a little bit sour for a couple weeks. And then I was like, okay, if I'm not playing, I need to be making these two girls better. And every day we would go and do middle training and every piece of advice that I could give them to try to help them. I would, I was like, Oh, your footwork needs to be doing this. Cause like, it's just such a small change that I was like, this will actually really help you. And they were like, wow, that is so helpful. Thank you. Or sometimes they'd be like, shut up Tori. And I'd be like, okay, you're right. <laughs> but there was this one woman that came in, she was a former player and she was like, just this awesome girl. And I was like, wow, she's really cool. And then when she left coach was like, oh yeah, she was a starter for three years. And then these freshmen came in and beat her out. And she, knew that her role and her time of starting was over. And so she tried to help them be the best players and they became two like, um, of the best medals at Team USA. And I was like, well, maybe I could be that role. But then I just wasn't happy with that. And so I started working really, 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 really hard because coach was like, what if one of them gets injured and you've been throwing yourself a pity party and then you suck and then we lose? And I'm like, well, okay, that can't happen. So I was working really hard in the gym. And then, you know, one of them did get injured and I got to go in and I had some of the best highlights of my career in the NCAA tournament because I stopped 
being sad that I wasn't starting. And when I was finally given my opportunity, I made the best of it. And I just think that, yeah, I was unfortunate that I wasn't starting, but everything happens for a reason. And that just showed me that I can be a better person and help the team even when I'm not starting. The Nick Hogue Show, episode 175. And I have to bring up the the Ontario match in the semis because I, I have a lot of friends who were on that team and I know the coaches really well. And they, they were trying to remember back, but I've talked to a few people and I got to confirm, they think you scored four to the last five points in the fifth set to beat Ontario. And, and one guy I trust is a pretty good memory said, you got a front row kill, went back to the service line, smashed an ace. They call a timeout. You come out of the timeout, smash another ace. And then he thinks you got a back row kill in transition to end the match. Like, do you remember just feeling untouchable in, in the fifth set against that game against Ontario? Well, I remember it was P1, and then, like, you're right, I, I, I got I got the set um, off the right side and scored, got two aces, and then I, I remember clearly remember the last point, it was a block from our left side, a one-handed block. He just, like, went for the show and got the one-handed block, and uh, that'll, I'll always remember that, because the crowd was going nuts, too, because it's all, it's, like, half the crowd was all people that I knew, my friends, so, so that was fun, too, but, yeah, I... I there's sometimes that I feel like I can't miss a serve, for example, or I can't not score. And that's just a strange feeling that I can't really describe. Uh, it happened to me actually this summer during DNL where I was serving. And I was just like, I'll just keep hitting the ball as high as I can. Like, I just, I, there's a feeling where like you're in the, in the zone and you can't miss. And it doesn't happen all the time, honestly. But when it does, it's a great feeling. And that's one of the times where I really felt like I couldn't really not score a point if I, if I got the ball. Yeah, like when you think about your approach, maybe it's changed since back then, but like, does a timeout really affect you? Because I think as coaches, sometimes we think we have more power than we do that we want you to think about it or we want to stop the momentum. But to get an ace leading into a timeout and to come out of a timeout and get another ace, like, is that something that even went into your mind? Or like you said, you're so confident that you were just going to go for it from the end line? Uh, it, didn't, it didn't bother me. It, uh, it gave me some rest. And, and, and no, I, I knew where I was going to serve. I knew. I was going to go for it. I wasn't going to back down. Just, just give a free ball. Uh, uh, I think it was 12-10 when I went for my serve after the timeout. And uh, I was going to go for it. I was, I was so hyped up. I, was, I had tons of energy, like the crowd and all the people that were there. It was, it was, it was a great experience. But um, the, the timeout didn't bother me. And just a quick sidetrack from kind of your timeline. We were talking before the show, and I think serving is a, a skill that you've definitely put a lot into and get a lot out of. So... When you look back as a youth athlete, because you're, you know, a coach's kid, were you the kid like throwing up spin serves to yourself, like learning and kind of horsing around a little bit? Or when did you kind of feel like serving was a skill that you kind of excelled at and you were going to be either jump float server, jump spin server? Like, were, were you a seven-year-old who was hitting a jump float in the gym? Or how, do, how young do you remember that you were going for it on your serve? Well, I remember when I came back from Paris and I joined, uh, like, I always, when I was younger, especially when I came back to the Sherbrooke Brown when I was 11, I always trained with people that were older than me. Um, and I remember coming back from Paris and like already trying to spin serve. Like, I wasn't successful at it, but I, I, I was trying the technique and I was perfecting. But I don't think it was until my third year pro, actually, and when I moved to Paris after I played two years in, in France, I moved to Paris for my third year to play professional there. And that's when I, changed my toss a bit. I had a little bit of a lower toss and I tried like some float serves with the same toss. That's kind of really when I perfected the serve. And that's when I was like, I really, that's a skill I, I love. It's probably my favorite skill out of all of them. And uh, I want to be the best at it as I can be. 
And when you're really feeling your serve, like let's just zero in on the jump float for a second. Like, are you so confident that you can move, I don't know, the front or left side to his left and in front or like how, how accurate can you put it with like the speed and pace necessarily to stress out like a world level passer right now? Uh, I'm confident I can serve any seam and the lines are a little bit trickier because there's more space to mistake, but I'm pretty confident I can hit any seam and even the line at a, at a decent pace, like over hundred kilometers an hour. So. I've always curious with top spin servers, like you can actually pinpoint the seam. Like it's not as simple as like you're cutting the cord in half and you're going to hit it as hard as you can. Like you are being very specific at that speed or, or sometimes you just hit it and hope it goes in, not hope it goes in, but like, you know, it's in, but you're just going to crack on one. Yeah. And there's some servers that like, like lay on, but he's the guy that like, no matter where he puts it, no matter who's receiving, he'll do a lot of damage. Um, I don't have that 135 kilometer speed, but I, I can pinpoint a steam and I'll go instead of going like 120, I'll go 110, but it'll be like reflecting the steam, knowing that maybe passes it to six, struggles to his left or to his right. Uh, that's probably the game plan that, that the coaches give to us, but uh, definitely that's something that I work at knowing. Like, I'll, I'll well put, we, we, I've done this before with the, the national team, you put mats on the floor and like, oh, specific, specific scene I have to hit. And uh, yeah, the accuracy is very definitely something, especially on my serve because it's not serves that. It's not a serve that's 130. I can I can hit it hard. I don't think I've, I've gone up to. I think my hardest is 124. But uh, hitting, being accurate, is, is another very very deadly weapon. And I'm curious with either club coaches, pro coaches, national team coaches, has any team ever had like a system that's affected your serve? Like uh, Coach Your Brains Out is a very popular podcast in the U.S. They do a great job. And John Sparrow was on there and he felt like he had to win over the U.S. team where like if Taylor goes back and misses and Matt Anderson's the next server, we don't want Matt thinking that he has to make it because we can't miss two in a row or whatever the team rule is. We want him to think like he's got the green light to go for it. So in your career, do you feel like you always have the green light or is there a moment that creeps into your mind where kind of like oh the guy in front of me just missed so now i gotta make it so we can get a little bit of pressure on these guys that they have to earn a side out here uh that never goes through my mind actually if somebody misses before me i'll uh i'll obviously judge depending on the score depending on uh, uh who's our next server if i'm really serving well and i have like six aces in the game i'll go for it uh, i feel good on the service line i can float i can float the ball depending on if there's a pass or a struggle to float serves uh, there's a lot of things going on if, if i do feel like a team i'm missing uh, seven or eight plus serves a set or in the set right now definitely i'll maybe take some off but i think one thing that's really uh underdeveloped is an 80 percent serve where it's low risk but it's still like fairly high reward like knowing that you can get the scene at a good pace knowing that they might not have uh, a double plus pass or they'll have to like set the outsides as opposed to like having that middle option. Um, I think that's something that needs to be developed by everyone, by every athlete. Um, and that'll help a lot. Because knowing you can go back there and not just like put a few ball over, but knowing that you could put them in trouble and that you will make that serve eighty five percent of the time. Yeah, no, that's great to hear. And and then the decision for you to either float or spin, is that really depend on the scattering report that you're kind of so confident in both? Or is there ever a day where you're just feeling one over the other? Like, does it usually come down to what's going to make them uncomfortable? Or sometimes you just say, like, I, I can't miss from the end line, so I'm going to I'm gonna crack a few spin serves. Uh, I mean, my serves are 80 to 85% spin, but I want people to know that I know how to float with the same toss and being very deceptive about it. Knowing the passer maybe struggles with float, and I'll hit like two, three spins at him, and then pop a float in there, and he shanks it. 
then like it's it, it, it ends up being a, quite a mind game after that too. Um, I really have I, I love my short serves as well. Um, so look, I have a lot on my in my arsenal, and I've been working at it, especially serving. I've been working so hard for the past like I would say eight years that I'm uh, I'm still working at it today. There's nothing that's perfect, right? So uh, knowing that the receivers know that I have everything makes me have quite a bit of edge on. Them. Nice, nice. Uh, and I'm curious for any either coaches listening or younger athletes, is there any serve that you would encourage people to look into that starts to like layer a game plan that you feel like when you spin serve into one, you get behind the setter and maybe they can't set the middle zone very well? Or is there any like game planning stuff that you would like to uh, maybe more people to draw attention to that you just feel is like a, almost like an if this, then that statement in our sport that if you can hit this zone, then the other team reacts in this way? Or, or is it almost too hard to crack that code because the skill level is so high right now? Well, that's a good point. Actually, serving to one is a tactic that, that a lot of coaches use, especially when it's a team that, that struggle from, from uh, when the ball is coming from behind the setter. Uh, the other thing is, I think that a serve that's going, this is TJ, actually, I'm quoting TJ saying, he, uh, he hates, or the most difficult ball to set is when the pass is coming from behind him, but also the pass is coming, or the serve is coming from behind him as well. So from five to one, is even harder from, than from one to one, if that makes sense. Uh, he told me that, and, and, and I kept that in mind because now sometimes like, the, the objective of the game plan is to serve to one. I also I sometimes move to five and then serve to one. So the ball comes from behind the setter twice, like from the service line and from the passing spot too. Yeah, I'm just thinking anecdotally, I don't really have the numbers in front of me or even like a strong grasp, but I would imagine that's easier for a float server to go five to one. Like do you as a spin server who maybe wants to thumb up a couple balls, do you feel like you have less real estate or are you just as confident with your spin serve going line to line? Uh, now I'm as confident. Um, obviously that's something I had to develop, but uh, a, serve, a serve to one is a great serve regardless of where, where it comes from uh, in service line. But uh, I, I've been working at serving from everywhere from very far part of one area and also all the way to five. I, I really want to develop and know because maybe one day the game plan is going to be to get this guy's trouble when the serves from five. And that's when I know, like, regardless of what happens, knowing the game plan, I can serve there confident about it too. Now, it, it seemed like it was almost a trend at the Olympics that spin servers, and maybe it happened before the Olympics, I'm sure it did, that the ball starting to like hook into the seams. It doesn't look like like a 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock spin serve anymore, where it looks like it's coming across on an angle. I'm wondering, is that deliberate and something you pride yourself on where it almost makes the passer have to go arms first or they have to negotiate the seam a little bit more? So do you feel like you're ever giving up pace to hit this ball that hooks a little bit or you can still like crack on these and get the ball to bend a little bit? Uh, I like I like giving it a little bit of size. I think one of the hardest serves to pass is for the receiver in five to pass a serve that's coming from one and curling into the seam in five six. I know that's a lot of numbers, but it's kind of curling away from the guy in five into six, and that's really hard because you have to get behind it, like or else it's going to skid off the arms. Yeah, there's 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 so many cool servers out there that you that they keep watching. All the way from where they serve from to what their toss is like and what their spin is like, like you said. There, there's, there's a lot of guys that obviously hit it really hard. It floats a little bit, but some other have a little bit side spin. There's one, uh, uh, Byron Ketarakis, he's a center on Team Canada. His serve, somehow, he goes from six, but it hits 
that five six seems so well and it curls away from the gun six so it's such a hard serve to to, to pass it's it's a very you know, I would say dirty serve and that's that's why he's one of the best servers I would say on on team Canada. Now we've had TJ on the show a couple of times and he really likes the cat and mouse game of scouting. And like, he thinks almost he's looking at your blocker. So if you're scouting him on like a previous match, you have to know yourself to know what he's doing. It was just this great layering of the game plan. So when we're, we're talking speeds that you're, you're saying like a world-class guy's hitting over 130, and a lot of guys are hitting over 110. Are you scouting before the match and you're confident they're going to go 116? Or do you think that they're so skilled like you are that they're game planning and saying, well, we're going to serve on our left, even though that whole previous match, he was going into 1-6. Like, it, it, I think it's easy to spotlight the cat and mouse between the middle blocker and the setters. Is there also a cat and mouse going on between the receivers and the server about who can change what first? Definitely. I kind of, like I said, I kind of like to have every single serve that I can like put in uh, confidently. But there's 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 listers like I would say Leon or uh, that that just go for it. And his serve is so difficult to pass, regardless of who's passing. That like he's just gonna bomb it, and you know it's coming, and you just have to like it's it's a it's a defense. It's not. Uh, and there's some some like full service, for example. Um, some guys that toss float but have some hybrid serves. Uh, like Graham Bygrass has a great hybrid serve too. Uh, he's more like you said, a little, uh, little game between the receiver and him. So that's there's definitely that. There's a lot more of that than really strong serves, I would say. Because most of the most of the athletes in the world can hit between 110 and 120. Um, above 125, it starts to get like a very unique, unique type of type of players. And, and that was a great point you brought up earlier about like you'll put mats on the floor or like a visual or, or is there anything else you can do in the practice gym? Because uh, I think coaches, that's maybe the hardest thing to recreate is like the pressure moment of going back to the service line versus, oh, you're going to serve 25 balls at the end of practice. There's no way that's going to feel like a VNL serve, right? So is there anything that you found to either match the pressure or that you've just gotten so many touches that you're comfortable in any situation? Like it is an individual skill, but how do you practice it so much that it does transfer to a big match? Uh, I think putting like yourself in context whenever you're serving, it's easy to go through motion, but I think it's really important to be like, hey, like it's 24 24. And just really imagining it, maybe closing your eyes for five seconds, really adding that layer of pressure that might, you might not feel as much as in a game. I think it's hard to recreate exactly how you feel in a situation like that. I think it just comes with experience and how many, how many moments like that you, you, uh, you went through. But in practice, it's you could try to recreate maybe 5% of that. And it's still better than just going through the motion. So yeah, I think that's, that's the, 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 we actually talked about a lot about it in the national team. And that's something that we, uh, we go by because when the big moments come, you can't just get it in because the other team is going to like free ball, getting a free ball uh, is, a, is a big gift for the other team. So, and just one more question on the serve. I'm curious where you stand on this, where a player at your level, who's obviously scouted the opponent, do you like the signal from the bench where they're going to tell you where to serve? Or do you feel like you have the recall and you can feel out the match a little bit? Because I think some coaches don't like the idea of giving the signal where some totally want to drive the bus and almost be calling signs like a back catcher in baseball, like on the national team is Glenn or Dan telling you where to serve or, you know, the assignment uh, before you get back to the end line. Uh, to me, they never told me where to serve. Obviously, there's a game plan saying that like, that's the weaker receiver. But when there's a weaker receiver, you don't just go straight at him and try to hit the seam and make him move it because most receivers are skilled enough to pass, like boat serves or, or good spinsters. But if you hit those seams, those are the dangers of play. So 
I'm always looking for those scenes that are for the line shots near the receiver that's on paper weaker. And obviously, if the guy's just passing really well and he has he's in a good day, then they'll adapt and talk to us and say, like, okay, let's try to move it to, to another receiver or serve a, only serve to one because instead of struggling. A lot of information go, goes through during timeouts and through the game, too. So. The Samantha Bricio Show, episode 78. And one thing that got a lot of attention when you were at USC was was your ability to serve the ball. So at, do you remember at what age did you start using the, this hybrid spin serve, or was that developed at uh, the university level? It was developed there. Um, my Probably my third week into practice, my freshman year, I got um, injured. I got a sprained ankle. Somebody went under the net, and I got hurt. Um, so I was a couple of weeks out. And then uh, before that, I used to do spin, uh, top serve, spin serve, spin serve, top serve, I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> after that, since I was, you know, fresh out of an injury, they didn't want me to jump that much. So they were cutting out the, the spin serve. So we tried to do a float serve. And make was like, you know, because I've never done a jump float serve. It's kind of hard if you're trying to learn how to do it because you know the coordination is not doesn't come naturally so we were trying to to start doing a float serve and we were practicing it was only make an eye i remember and then all of a sudden it just came out you know i remember hitting the ball hard and it was a really good serve so both of us looked at each other we were like hmm we might be onto something, and we just like we just started from there. <laughs> so you're telling it me that one accident. of the one of the best serves in the world was an accident, is what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> awesome. So when you're back at the service line, like you mentioned, the coaching staff helped you with with your attitude and, and your mental abilities. How did that come together when you're serving? Because just watching some clips on YouTube, it looks like you'll you'll serve a couple aces. The other team will call a timeout, and you'll go back, and you're still serving aces or serving tough. Where it doesn't seem like your your tactics or or your technique ever change. So how did you stay so consistent and aggressive from the service line? You know, something else that Mick taught me is that routine makes a difference. So I have the same routine every single time I go back to serve. Like I always stay the same time. I concentrate the same way. So I think I think that's the key. Just like have a routine and just, you know, figure out what works for you and always do it. Now, for any of our young listeners, what tips could you give them? Like, is it really important to keep the ball in front of you? Do you consider the footwork really important? Or is it just your ability to hit it hard into seams? Like, if somebody was starting to try to copy this serve, what would you say is the probably the two or three most important things? Well, I think what the most important, at least for me, it's the toss. Because the toss has to be at a good height, you know, because if you hit the ball that hard from a... From a low point, it's just going to go out all the time or it's going to go into the net. So the toss is the most important part. You have to you have to figure out the right height for you. It just depends on your arm. It depends on how tall you are. But, I mean, I feel the footwork and all that has to be something you feel comfortable with because, I mean, even if you try to copy mine and if you don't feel comfortable, it's not going to work. So... You just have to find something that you feel comfortable with and uh, then you can start getting better from there. And how do you personally like to think about risk or, or maybe the coaching staff's help uh, influence this, but with somebody being so aggressive, it, 
you're going to miss serves, right? So there, there seems to be a small culture in volleyball that thinks that you shouldn't miss serves because you're giving points away. But obviously, someone being aggressive, you're going to earn points. So do you ever think that missing a serve is a bad thing? Or do the coaches get on you? Or are you allowed to play free and just go for it every time? I mean, missing a serve is never a good thing, you know. But you have to take risks because... You know, it's better to miss a serve when you're being aggressive than miss a serve when you're being safe. So I try to always go into the service line aggressive. And I mean, always trying not to miss a serve, but also always being aggressive. And, and looking again at USC and, and watching some games and listening to some commentators, it, it sounded like you could score in a variety of ways where you were a good blocker, a good server, and attacking, they would use you to the back row, which wasn't that common in the women's game at that time, and obviously getting a lot of front row sets. So as you continue to develop as this offensive player, was that something you were bringing ideas to the team, or was it the coaches and the other team saying, hey, maybe we should run the pipe a little bit faster, or maybe we should get you swing blocking? Like, How did you continue to develop when you were there? Okay, first of all, I'm not a good blocker. That's something <laughs> that I always struggle with. <laughs> you know, I was really bad, then... Uh, USC helped me a little bit, but I'm still, you know, I think it's the thing that I struggle the most with. But, you know, there's always room for improvement, so I'm still working on it. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I've always loved to hit the pipe, to hit back row. It's probably one of my favorite things. I think I like it even more than hitting front row because it's so unpredictable, you know, like the other team doesn't know you're coming. You can play it as fast as you want. You can play in, you know, different points along the net. And yeah, I mean, that was something that we worked on together. Obviously, working as a team, we got really good at it. And that, you know, having really good setter helped me being good at it because, you know, I'm not just good. I need someone good with me. So I had a really good team. So that helped me just get better at everything. And again, if somebody wanted to steal your ability to hit the, the back row attack, like for our younger listeners, when you first started hitting it, was the setter setting the ball to a spot or were you paying attention to their distance and you're always like a certain distance away from them? Like what was the best way to learn that skill? Because you're flying into the back row and it's very aggressive. So the timing has to be pretty spot on for you to get it, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to have a lot of confidence with your setter, but I think... If you're just starting to hit back row, I think it's easier to go to a specific spot along the net uh, rather than follow the setter. I think as you get better and more comfortable with your setter, you can, you know, talk to your setter. You always have to communicate with your setter and you can talk to her and tell her that, you know, you will always follow her at this point, uh, playing professionally. Um, I always follow my setter. So... I always communicate with her throughout the, the play. So, you know, sometimes she would tell me, okay, you go pipe, but the, the play doesn't allow me to go pipe. So I have to go, I have to call another play in the middle of the play and I have to follow the setter. So you, the key is always, you know, communicate with your setter. If you communicate with her, if she knows what you're doing, I think it will always work. And with the speed you're running it out of the pipe, do you just know where the blocker is going to be based on like tradition of where they line up? Or do you have time to get some vision and then choose the shot from there? You can always see the block. I mean, especially from back row, uh, because you have more distance from the net, it's easier to see the block, but you have to quick, you have to pick quick because the ball is quick. So you don't have that much time. 
Now there's a lot of good stuff to talk about, but I do want to circle back and just talk about blocking real quick. I'm trying to understand how someone who is athletic as you, I think you're 6'2", like how has blocking been a big challenge for you? You started playing middle, which gets a lot of blocking reps as a young athlete. Like what, what is maybe the biggest challenge you have with that uh, skill? That I always fly. That's my thing. <laughs> you know, because at, at this level, there are many players that are, you know, getting up there pretty high. So as a blocker, you're always trying to get as high as you can. And one of my flaws is that I do get high, but I fly. And that's hard for my middle. Because, you know, they, they always get there too close. But then if you move, it opens a little hole and the ball goes through it. So, yeah, that's my problem. I, you know, I've always tried to correct that. But it's just sometimes with the adrenaline, with all of this, I forget. And it's just, you know. <laughs> nice. It's good to hear somebody of your level of, of play that you still work on stuff. So that, that's good to hear that some young athletes can know that they if they do that, they can still work through it. Yeah, I mean, there's always like... You're never going to be perfect, so there's always room for improvement for something.